evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about talk about the art of the sequel. And one of the issues that comes up in um, sequel writing is how much to um, how much you need to refer to your first story or book um, going forward. And it greatly depends on um, the story that you're telling and the characters that you're using. Um, for me, if I'm writing a sequel to a book. Like, if, when I write Iterum sequel, and in Iterum, John and Rodney are the main characters, um, and the reader, I, t- I take the reader through their, um, through their path back to Atlantis. Um, there are a couple of options for potential sequels. Um, I am really seriously considering one about Taylor's journey back to Atlantis, um, and what she faced, uh, that might be more of a short story because it would be really difficult to write. And I'm not sure how much I'd want to write of it. Um, and I have Miko and I have Lauren um, and I'm, you know, so if I focus on one of these characters, uh, the events of Iterum won't, won't have any play until they get to that moment where they set through the gate to Atlantis. As far as like Miko and Lauren are concerned. Other than the fact that they, they're not going to know what John and Rodney are up to, so right. it wouldn't show up in their POV, right? So, other than the fact that there's time travel, which you have to establish that in the new character's point of view anyway, right? There's just nothing. Well, I mean, unless the only thing that might be an issue there, and it depends on what you're trying to write. Like, if you end the story before the, like, let's say you're doing Miko, if you end the story before she reunites with John and Rodney, there's nothing to do. Right. But if you get to the point where you're converging the timelines, then you do have to eventually bring in some of the John and Rodney details. Right. But it yeah, will be from Miko's point of view. So it does so that, that she would not know. Right. And then, so it's actually easier in that case because you've got a character who's ignorant of these details, who's asking and saying, well, what happened? And John and Rodney can explain, and it gives you a built-in vehicle to do that exposition via this conversation with Miko. Right. And you can reground the reader in the events of Iterum without doing a big data dump, a big info dump. Which you want to avoid at all costs. Um, especially with Miko would be really interesting because Miko knew pretty much from the moment she landed in the past that she was on an um that she was in an alternate universe. Um and she is fiercely protective of her new life uh, because she got her mama back and she's not, she's not going to play. She's not playing. Um, so from the very, you know, from the very moment that she knows she has to head towards Star- the, Star- the Stargate program and she has to get to Atlantis. She knows these things about herself already when she's like 12 years old, but she's got her mom back and she's playing for keeps. John didn't know he was in an alternate universe. The fluffy-headed little idiot. Well, things were so much the same for him. Right. There were no big moments. If he had come back after... Or, like, if he'd come back older, like when Matt was already... I'm dead. Mm -hmm. Except Matt wasn't dead. That would have been his clue that... Right. He was in a different universe, but he came back so young and there were no significantly different events. And at that, if you, if you think about going back, if you're in your forties and you go back to being a teenager, some of that shit, you've just forgotten. 
you wouldn't even, I mean, you wouldn't even notice it was different. Right. If all your basic relationships are the same. But Rodney and Miko specifically had details in their life that were, it was really easy to pick out that they were not where they, they were on a different world, basically. Um, they were in a new universe. And I think that both Lorne and John had such similar experiences until the point they started fucking things around that they didn't know that, that they were in an alternate universe. That things didn't stick out for them. Basically, yeah. I mean, but neither John nor Lorne are dumb by any touch of the imagination. I mean, they both have master's degrees. They're both mm -hmm. officers with a very, you know, successful careers. They're not dumb, but they are living very, 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 very similar lives in the, than what they had in the past. Well, with Rodney, his first clue was, well, there were two. Number one, he wasn't allergic to citrus, which would be a big one. And two, he was studying the wrong degree. And with Miko, it was her mom who would have been dead who was dead in her original timeline at the age of 12. So these are very big ripples that Rodney and Miko encountered that John and um, Rodney, I mean, John and Lauren, Evan did not, but then Taylor um, was slapped in the face with the fact that she was living in an alternate universe pretty much immediately, perhaps even faster than Miko, depending on, um, when they woke up and how they landed and, you know, who they saw first. So Miko and Taylor have really, you know, um, emotionally wrought experiences in the past. So exploring them landing in the past. Um, I think I'd like to start Miko out like the day she meets Rodney McKay. And then there are like these moments where she's thinking, is he, you know, did he time travel? Is he responsible for this? Or is he like this because I'm on an alternate universe? <laughs> because, because she wouldn't know. Because she knows she's in an alternate universe. She knows she's not living on her earth. Is this just how this McKay is? Because he's not giving anything away. So, yeah. So that would be, but if you're writing a sequel, if I wrote a sequel about John and Rodney in Iterum, um, I would have to lay a bigger foundation for the um, um, for the previous book to remind the reader of what happened. Not right. a huge amount, because you don't want to info dump on your reader. And, you know, honestly, there is this arrogant assumption that, for me, if someone's coming to read the sequel of Iterum, that they've read Iterum first. <laughs> Right. But you can't necessarily assume that the reader has reread the story, right? So right. if you've if you've if you've gone, I mean, I just generally don't think that most people pick up mid-series and start reading, but there is the goal that your work should stand alone. But you have to assume that in a sequel that not everybody's gonna have reread your work recently before they go in. And there's a funny thing is people ask me a lot about like, how much data to give about the prior story, and there is an inclination you're not trying to retell the whole story because otherwise it's, it's re otherwise you've got two stories in one. It's a recap of the prior story plus your new story. And you know, that that's like telling the first story and showing the new story. And that's not, that's not the goal. It's figuring out what information is needed that the reader will not be lost, that they will understand the context of 
this, where the story is. And we can pick some stories that we're working on sequels on and give you some examples of like what information is critical for the reader to know in order to understand the news story and what information is not important. Um, but one of the things I just want to call out is some people, there are actually some fan fiction writers, and I would even say many fan fiction writers actually already have this skill. They just don't realize they have it. And what I say that is that they have learned how to tell a story, to tell a fan fiction story that gives enough information from canon that the reader isn't lost without retelling canon. Now, there are also the fan fiction writers who start, you know, every Harry Potter story with Harry Potter was raised at number four, Pivot Drive in Little Winging Surrey. And we all kind of go, oh, we know. Um, but many writers, many fan fiction writers already know how to tease in little bits of canon information so that someone who's not intimately familiar with canon can ground themselves in where they are in the show or the books or the movie or whatever and remember oh yeah that happened in the movie and and why that piece of information is important so some people have already worked on developing the skill of how to bring in these little little bits of information sprinkled in in the narrative to ground the reader in what happened prior at the right point because just giving somebody an info dump up front like some kind of recap or something that's not the right point, right? You need to give people the information at the point that it becomes relevant or just right ahead of when it becomes relevant. So some people already know how to do this. So if you think about it, if you if you are writing fan fiction and you're not somebody who just, you know, incorporates half the script from an episode, please don't do that. Um, if If you're not doing that now, you may already have been working on how to do sequels. You just haven't contextualized it that way. Because it's basically the same thing. If you think of your past story as your canon, okay, and your sequel, it's how much of that do they need to know to comprehend the new thing you're writing? So if I look, if I look at Iterum, coming into a sequel, what do they need to know? Um, Weir's insane, and she's not dead. She's a problem. They time-traveled. Because Atlantis was destroyed. That's basically all you need for the sequel. Because the sequel has its own story to tell. But that's a sum up of what happened in Iterum. Well, Weir's crazy. John and Rodney, Miko, Evan, and Taylor time traveled. They need to find Ronan and crew. Now, you might find little bits of information as you write that are important to mention from before, like the method of time travel might be important. You might need to recap the the, the interim itself and the, the, the lady in the interim. I can't remember her name. Thera. Thera. Um, all of that will eventually come up because I'm sure that she has a role to play in the sequel. But I wouldn't introduce Thera's details until Thera's first scene. Right. Um, and then one or two sentences of reflection would um, would cover that. Right. And that's when you do it is it's like, okay, here we are. Um, we're bringing Thera in. So we're going to introduce how Thera, how they got to know Thera in the first story and refresh the reader's memory. And that's why it's important that you put the details at the point that it is relevant to the reader because 
if you give, let's say you give a, a recap, right? Like, you know, last week on NCIS, um, if you do that kind of approach, like at the beginning of your story where you're kind of recapping what you did before, yeah, please don't. But if you're doing like a recap type thing, 50,000 words in, do you think people are going to remember what you refresh their memory on in like three paragraphs at the beginning of your last story? No, they're not. So that's why you want to give the information where it matters. Um, so they do need to know, the reader does need to know pretty early on that they're in an alternate universe, that there has been time travel. Um, they need to know who all time traveled. Um, you know, and beyond that, there's not a lot of information um, that needs to be known early on. Other things that may become more important later as, as you get to that part, like about Thera or about... Um, it could be that it becomes necessary to refresh the reader about some of the some of the, some of the things that John and Rodney noted were different in their lives, or that Miko noted were, was different in her life. Um, that might become. I think there will be a moment where Evan Lauren confesses to a really big um, ripple that he caused, and um, the things that he had to do to make sure everything still went as it should oh i know what you're talking about yes he will need to confess to that um so but yeah i mean but i think that knowing what it is that none of them will hold it against him and would have done the same and i think that at that point mckay will will know what yeah. evan did um and none of them will go like okay well yeah you shouldn't have done that because of course you should have done that i would have done that if i'd have been there Good job on keeping things on track as much as you did. <laughs> because, you know. You're the boss of Ripple Management. We're putting you in charge of all Ripple Management going forward. <laughs> you did a great job. Because you changed shit, dude. <laughs> um, so that's what, if you got, you sit down and think about your story and say, what is absolutely important for the reader to know to understand the beginning of the story? What has happened? Not every detail the reader might need to know, but what core pieces of information does the reader need to know early on to understand? And I don't mean in the first paragraph, but in the first chapter or so. Um, what is the information that the reader needs to know to, to ground them in what has already happened so that they're not lost? Um, and then also look at, with what you might plan to write, what additional information will come up later. And then when you know that, when you have your list, you know, these are the things that are important to know. You can then figure out how and when you're going to kind of sprinkle that information in and figure out what delivery vehicle you're going to do it with. So is it going to be um, through a discussion? Is it going to be through, I don't know, finding an old photograph? Is it going to be through looking at a memory in a pensive? Is it going to be, you know, there are a lot of different ways to give people information and you just have to decide, you know, which, which way you're going to do it. So, okay. So one of the sequels I'm working on is, um, the sequel to DeNovo and yay. In that story, there actually isn't a ton um, the reader needs to know early. Um, one of the earliest things they'll need to know that Tony has a different team, um, that he has a new boss, Mike Wepler, that Mike is temporarily running the MCRT until Gibbs comes back, but he's actually the special agent in charge of the office. Um, 
And he's unexpectedly sexy. Unexpectedly sexy, yes. Um, so, and he'll they'll probably need to know fairly quickly that he's in a relationship with Ian Edgerton. Although, it's not like you need to, like, all I just need to do is, like, have Ian come and give him a kiss. It's pretty obvious, right? Um, but that they, you know, there'd probably be some mention that they got together after Ian had spotted him at the FBI. And they'd known each other back in, you know, they, they'd met during Fletzy. And when Ian had seen up the FBI one day while he was consulting on a case, he'd looked Tony back up. That you, There's no need to go into more literally than that about how they got together. Because if someone hasn't read DeNovo, then they don't deserve those details. <laughs> <laughs> but also those details probably won't be relevant to the story that you're telling. And that is also important. It's important to ground your reader in the universe, in, in the verse that you've created with your first book, right? Or your first story. But you don't want to give them details that aren't relevant to the story that you're telling. And that, and that matters. What story are you telling? So the sequel to De Novo is a lot centered around what happens when Gibbs comes back. Um, how that shakes out, what the, what the ripples are, because I, it's an exploration of kind of the ripples, right? You know, so Tony's in a different place. There's a new management structure. Where, what happens when Gibbs comes in and throw, and he becomes the stone thrown into that pond? How does that affect Tony? How does that affect his trajectory to NCIS? Is, is Gibbs able to slot back in? What is it potentially, what are the ramifications of his relationship? And then continuing to explore the issues about when Ziva comes back and what happens with that and her stalking Tony. And so there's that, that's the stuff. So the, the things, the things that happen in the first book that directly tie to those plot points are the important ones. Aside from the general setting, which is that Tony's the team lead for the FSVU. He works for Mike Wepler. Here are his team members, which you would, very naturally get acclimated to that in the course of the story and then directly tie the events from the first story that feed into the plot points in the second story and those are the ones you need to be have a plan for acclimating your reader to and where you're going to tell that that piece so most of tony's relationship to ian and how they got together and and all of that stuff is completely irrelevant to the sequel. His relationship with Ian is not irrelevant, but how it all happened doesn't matter in the sequel. So revisiting all of those details is just info for the sake of itself. When I could be writing them having sex or something. I mean, you know. Priorities. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Sex. Mm -hmm. Um... One thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about this, I was like, I wonder how how arrogant Gibbs will actually be. I mean, would he expect Tony to come back to his team as a senior field agent? Is he that arrogant to, to assume that Tony that Tony would give up his own team and his own lead <laughs> to come back to the MCRT? Uh, and I'm just like, yeah, he is that arrogant. Yeah, he is. <laughs> oh. But Gibbs comes back to NCIS basically the same way, right? So the desk he packs up, the person's stuff he packs up and puts on the SFA's <gasps> desk is his boss's stuff. Oh, no. I'm looking forward to this so much. 
Now, Gibbs comes back a little bit differently because the whole situation with Ziva didn't pull him back, so all that, but he still comes back unannounced, unexpected, walks in, packs up the desk, puts all that box of stuff on the SFA de SFA's desk and gets to work. And then Mike Wepler comes into the office and he's like, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing at my desk? Gibbs <laughs> like, your desk. <laughs> So I decided I wanted to mirror that scene, even though the progression of events is going to be a little bit different, but because I wanted it to be this, this sort of juxtaposition in the past, he'd taken somebody who was at that point actually his peer, but it would be subordinate and packed up his stuff and just chucked it on another desk. And now he's doing it to his boss. And how's that going to go down? It actually speaks a lot to um, Shepard's character that she didn't tell him. Did he even what? speak to her before coming back? No. See, that's so arrogant. He retired. <laughs> well, the thing is, in canon, she never processed his paperwork, which is why he was able to just walk into the building, get his badge reissued, and go back to work. And they and I, you know, I kept that situation where they don't process his retirement paperwork that he's technically on leave. So because I kept that, but it's got a shorter time limit. But because I kept that, um, in place where they're going to go ahead and hold his paper retirement paperwork, he's still going to have the facility to walk in with his ID, get his badge again, and go back to his desk. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> now, do I need to remind the reader of what happened in canon? A, there's no way to do that. But B, no. Because somebody who knows that episode is going to understand it for what it is. Somebody who so doesn't know the episode, it, it's not going to matter. It, right. it, it becomes kind of an Easter egg, mm -hmm. which are always fun to, you know, um, to put in your work. It's just for somebody who's really savvy to catch because they're the only ones that deserve to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, if you, this is the case. Sometimes it's like I try to write all my stories where somebody who doesn't know the canon very well can still, still understand them. Um, but mo most of the time, someone who knows, like, especially NCIS canon for many of my stories, not all of them, because some of them are very divorced from canon, but many of them, um, you will get a richer experience if you know the canon. So, but I try to not be, like, so enmeshed in any particular part in the canon that you'll be lost if you don't know it. And that is a little bit of a, a balancing act on its own, is how to give people enough information about what's happening in the episode without just using a transcript. Assuming you're working around an episode. I like to set um, stories during the summer months because I don't have to worry about what the canon events were going on right then. <laughs> That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> I do what I want. <laughs> I just make shit up. Then this happened. But still, I'll and make Gibbs references. Back. Right, but I'll still make references to, um, like, the canon events that occurred at the end of the prior season. So that anybody who knows the canon will go, oh, it's the summer. They're in the summer, right? Obviously, this is the summer. It's before the next thing happens. And for some people, that can be like a portent of doom, right? So, like, Catalyst isn't up right now. But when I was writing Catalyst... Catalyst refers to the events that occurred at the end of season seven, which is a spider in the fly, which is that whole cartel going after Gibbs thing. And um, 
Tony ultimately winds up in the crossfire while he's in Hawaii attending a funeral. And so I reference those events going on with the cartel to kind of let the reader know where the situation is situated in canon. Now, for anybody who's astute, they know what's coming up is dead air. And they have to be, and several people wonder about, oh my God, how, what, how is this, how is all this going to happen? How is this going to impact the situation with dead air? Because dead air is like the next major thing that happened to Tony and Cannon after that whole cartel fiasco. So, you know, but most of the story takes place between Cannon events. But you just kind of bring in and you mention the little pieces of information that are necessary to ground the reader. And whether you're grounding them in the canon or whether you're grounding them in your prior story, it's kind of the same skill. But like my last couple of lines in, or my last paragraph or two of Dance With Me, um, it if you uh, don't know the canon of NCIS, it doesn't matter. Nope. It's perfectly okay. Like, okay, Tony has a case. He has to go. But if you know the canon, you know he's about to walk face first into dead air. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there <laughs> holding my tablet, shaking it, going, no! <laughs> but what I would say about that is that it's an alternate universe. Um, and it's a universe where uh, Tony and Gibbs are, 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 much, are on much better standing. And um, Gibbs has his back. And Tim is at a place in in, the, in that particular story where he doesn't know which one of them he should be afraid of more. <laughs> right? So, um, and I don't honestly think that that situation would go down the same way because in the back of Tim's mind, he's going to be thinking, we cannot abandon the love interest of the Commandant of the Marine Corps during an undercover op because McGee's ambitious and he's not stupid. He's selfish, but he's not stupid. So I don't think he would turn the radio off just, you know, for reference, for those of you who screeched, (laughs) I don't think he would do it. I think she would. I don't think he would. She's very much still trying to get one up on Tony. Right. Mm -hmm. But Tim is in a different place. And I, I I wanted that to be clear when I was writing it. And so I hope that that kind of translated that Tim, that the Tim you saw in that story wasn't necessarily the, the same Tim that we got in canon. That he's, a, that he's a different animal. Yeah, I think that one confrontation in the car was really showed that, that it had gotten Tim thinking. And then also, you know, he was deeply invested in protecting um, Tony's virtue. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You don't have to go out with him if you don't want to, Tony. (laughs) That was so cute. Tony's like, gee, Mickey, thanks. (laughs) He's fresh out of a seminar. (laughs) Yeah, that was another Easter egg. Um, The... Um, the cyber thing, and in that particular universe, Rennie Grant didn't go to jail because Tony didn't take McGee's bullshit. He double checked his work, yeah. And so um, that that's another ding on Tim, you know, learning. He's still learning. So um, 
I kind of wanted to kind of shift McGee so that he's not hopeless. In case I want to come back to that, I wanted to set up a situation where I didn't have to deal with McGee being compl a, a complete waste of space. <laughs> you know? And that's author service for myself. Yeah, I guess sometimes dealing with one or two troublesome characters is just plenty of I mean, plenty. But in, in NCIS, potentially you have four, maybe five, and it can be exhausting. So sometimes you just like are going to be nice to McGee just because it's like I can't deal with Abby, Ziva, and McGee. <laughs> I don't think McGee would go near Rampart without permit. No, I don't know. And the thing is, is I don't, I would, Tony is not a damsel in distress. He doesn't need Randolph Rampart to rescue him. No. Not that Rampart wouldn't be willing to jump on that right white horse for Tony and, and try, but <laughs> right. usually usually Tony's going to have gotten himself out of the sewer by that point. <laughs> I don't actually need you, but you look great. Thanks. <laughs> Did you bring me a coffee? Because that would be awesome. Um, that I do need. <laughs> but, you know, I think McGee, I think if Ziva, the thing is, I think realistically, if, if, if Ziva turns off the radio and McGee can't control that situation, the responsible thing for him to do is to get out of the car and go find Tony and be with him and say, we need to, we need to, I'm going to be your backup here because Ziva's being a dick. I read and a story once with Dead Air where she did that and he responded by picking the feed up on his phone and putting his headset in. I'm, I'm putting his earbuds in and told her he was listening to a podcast. And then yeah. after it, um, because he was afraid she would hurt him. And after it was over, he um, went to whoever and filed a complaint. Now see, in, in the, in the case that they've, they've got two, the, McGee's got two issues. And if he's smart, I don't know how Kira's planning on this. But he's got two issues to deal with. One is Tony's out there without backup. So he's got to go address that issue first, which is he's got to get Tony away from doing the next, next house without backups. So we've got to call Tony. And the next issue is they're looking for a terrorist and they are on a time crunch, which means they can't just abandon the operation, which means the next call has to be to Gibbs. We need another backup team out here to monitor the feed because there's no backup right now. I can't leave Tony out here alone and Ziva's going to literally spork me to death if I get back in that car and turn the audio back on. I mean, I think the thing that would be really, um, because there is a time crunch and they are working on a schedule and there is a bomb. Um, I'm not sure if they know about the bomb yet at that point. I'll have to watch the episode or at least read the stupid um, um, script. Um, but I think that he needs to text Tony and tell him what is going on. Um, that's the least obtrusive way to to contact him in that situation where he can control when he looks at it and when he answers it because he is undercover. Um, and probably, I mean, he would have to do it all in text if he's seriously worried about Ziva killing him. And she threatened him more than once in canon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, so... <clears throat> Depending on how 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 dangerous he thinks his situation is, so he Gibbs isn't going to answer a text. Maybe I mean maybe Gibbs would look at a text. I don't know. I mean they they honestly make him so. Um, sometimes his responses make him practically ineffectual in a modern environment. 
Yeah. Like, can we trust Gibbs to text? Is he going to text? Is he going to look at the text? Um, what's the canon well, say on that? Uh, if, there's Balboa if, and his team. Yeah, if Tony takes over, it's, it's a, if McGee goes to Tony and says, this is a situation, and Tony gets and he he gets on and goes, okay, well, the job is we got to get a new backup team out here, and Gibbs is not going to effectively handle this. So he's going to call in another team to come out and do the backup. And how the recording yeah, interleaves. Yeah, yeah, Gibbs' phone can receive text. My dad has a phone very similar to the one Gibbs carried during that time period. It gets text. Yeah, I mean, texting out is not great. Because, <laughs> you know, when you have to... When you have to press the button three times to get an I. Gibbs yeah. doesn't text, but he receives text just fine. Um, but you, you either could see so you could go you could go one of two ways with Gibbs on that. See, I find it believable. Every like almost every variation of Gibbs I've read around Dead Air, I find believable, except for well, there's one notably that I had a really hard time with. But um, but him responding to it appropriately, I find believable. Him not responding appropriately, I find believable. So. You could go, depending on what serves your story, right? But if Tony isn't convinced, if he's not convinced of how Gibbs is going to respond, and he's focusing on the job, he's going to call Balboa and say, I need you explain the situation very professionally. Here's the bullet points. I need you to come relieve Ziva so that we have someone in the vehicle providing, monitoring the audio. And also at that point, he might say, also, I need somebody on your team to help get voice prints. Because... Um, I'm losing my voice because what? Yeah. If neither I mean, I, Tim nor Ziva could do it, why was Tony the only one out there? I mean, I understand the case that it couldn't be that McGee would have a hard time getting people to talk to him. They'd probably just, I could see that. And Ziva has got back at the right disposition, but it doesn't mean, I mean, maybe Tony could get 50 voice prints in the time it would take McGee to get 10, but it's still, but see this this in in this particular if if I wrote this sequel, um, Gibbs and Tony have a different relationship. Um, was Gibbs an MTAC during that whole voice print thing? I think so. He was he was he was at headquarters doing something. So he might not be able to even get a phone call or a text in MTAC. I don't know how that works. No, they get calls and stuff, but it depends. I probably imagine depends if they lock MTAC down. They probably have a skiff mode for MTAC, just like they do for the director's mm -hmm. office. But it's, but I I, I doubt that it, it he would have been because you see him getting texts in MTAC in canon. So I mean, I think that this Tony might even approach the whole going undercover thing differently and say, okay, look. Um, Tim can handle voice prints. Ziva is of no use in this operation. Um, she's not going to be able to get voice prints from me. She can't handle them. She's not going to be want. She's not going to want to sit in the car for hours and listen to me do it. Um, give her something else to do. Let's bring Balboa's team in to help me sweep this neighborhood through so we can get all these voice prints because we're on a time crunch. And because of the relationship he has with Gibbs, Gibbs is going to say yes. That makes perfect sense because in that particular um, AU, they, they have a really good working relationship. Right. And also, just like a couple days prior, Ziva called Tony a whore. So, right. And Gibbs was not appreciative. So she's not, he's not going to protest, I think, at all. It's my canon, actually, in that particular story that Gibbs is in love with Tony. Um, but won't let himself have that. And Tony wasn't prepared to wait. 
so they have this this thing between them um, that used to be sexual that's no longer sexual um and so Gibbs is very invested in Tony and in Tony's happiness. And so it's just a different animal. Yeah. And when you and when you twist a character like that, um, you have to mind your ripples. Yeah, you definitely set a different dynamic between Gibbs and Tony, which would change how Gibbs would react tremendously, assuming they assuming you did have this the setup with Gibbs with Ziva and uh McGee out there. So I think what it boils down to is that Gibbs has Tony's back, but he's not so much a masochist that he's willing to be the best man at the wedding. <laughs> uh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, because sometimes you can, you um, you can love someone, but the relationship is so being in a relationship with somebody can be toxic no matter how much love there is um just because of their baggage or your baggage or or your baggage together doesn't work right um you know honestly it's just so and sometimes you have to say okay look you know i really fucking love you but i can't live with you and i want to be there for you but i can't be with you and so, and so, having that kind of relationship and having a mature relationship with somebody um, was was a, having some emotional intelligence involved um, would change the relationship between Tony and Gibbs explicitly. I see them also kind of having that same relationship in Ascendant, which is what I patterned it after. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, Gibbs. Um, Gibbs loves him and he wants him, but he knows he can't have him because it just doesn't work. Yeah, I have I have one short where um, Gibbs loves Tony, but he just is too emotionally constipated to make a commitment. But in that short, you know, well, Tony's with Steve, but they have a threesome every once in a while. It's um, but that's it. Gibbs doesn't live there. He doesn't live with them. He just rolls into town occasionally and. They all could fall into bed together. Queenie, get in the corner. <sighs> Gibbs is gonna get. We just need to get Gibbs together with Fornell and move on with our lives. <laughs> I do kind of see Gibbs and Fornell retiring together somewhere and fishing a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like two or three years into their mutual retirement, going, do you think we should have sex? I think that'd probably be a good idea. I'm really tired of wanking you know it's just this jacking off this this solo routine isn't doing it for me anymore i don't think that jack uh, i don't think that gibbs would tolerate jack's empty fish pond no i am pretty sure in um these small hours that he stocked that fish pond (laughs) While, while jack was gone he stocked the pond well gibbs doesn't really have an easy way of getting there because jack's Fish pond is in what is it, Michigan I mean, in your or Minnesota? Story. No, I know, but it's it's in Michigan or in Minnesota. But I wasn't gonna leave that unaddressed. Tony did it. <laughs> Tony did it. <laughs> yeah, after continuum, it it did have um fish in it. But during the time period that Jilly's story is placed, um, con- um continuum hasn't happened yet. 
So I think Jack is just trolling everybody by keeping that pond empty. But um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the sequel, you also, when you're looking at your sequel, it's not just about um, the information that you give your reader. Uh, you gotta have a, a new hook because you don't want to tell the same story you've already told. But you also don't want to go too far into your new hook that you invalidate the events of your first book. <laughs> yeah, here comes the art part. <laughs> so it's it's a continuation, but it has to have some new elements. Um, sometimes there can be new POVs, and sometimes you're in the same POVs. It just depends on what your goal is for the sequel, what the hook is. Um, and where your story is going to go next. What's next? What happens next? What part of the story do you need to tell next? And who is the character in your in verse that can tell this, can that can relate this story the best to your reader? And sometimes the answer to that question might surprise you. Now, when I originally zero draft the queen in Sentinels of Atlantis, um, I zero draft it from Rodney's point of view. But when I sat down to write it, I was like, no, <laughs> that, that doesn't really work all that well, does it? I need to, I needed to back up and, and rethink about it and think about, um, what Miko, cause I had made a mistake early on in the, in the discussion with about the ATA gene. I'd forgotten that Miko had it. So I had to insert the queen into the. Um, overall arc of yes, 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 you did, Lady Holder. <laughs> you you fell down on your job. <laughs> Everybody forgot everything. We all forgot. But then we remembered and it was like shit. And then I had to insert the queen because originally the queen was not part of Sentinels of Atlantis. But I think that if you read it, you would not think so. No, you wouldn't know that. Um, but I when I zero drafted it, I was just trying to suck, I was just trying to fix the problem. I need to fix the problem. Um, then I was like, this would actually be more intimate and more interesting if I told it from Miko's point of view. And that's something that is really easy to do in an episode series where you can hop around to different POVs um, and you're not stuck. You know, that's one of the beauties, I think, of writing Sentinels of Atlantis. It was so freeing for me is that I could explore all these different characters and how they responded to being a Sentinel or a guide or their circumstances on Atlantis or their circumstances on Earth. One of my favorite POVs in Sentinels of Atlantis, which probably would become no surprise to anybody, was Patrick Shepard. Uh, it's not a surprise to me. You made him one of my favorite characters, too. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, but you know what's really interesting? I was looking at the statistics for the podcast, and the Patrick Shepard um, SGC episode has twice as many listens as anything we've done recently. Really? Yeah. Hmm. People are all or people are all in on it. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. I mean, riding Jack and Patrick together was like electrifying and i was like why why does this work so well <laughs> why is this why <laughs> i don't know but i was thinking i told you earlier i was thinking about writing them again for um you so incepted me into that pairing that i'll see about writing them for next uh july 
July. It's just delicious. Like, it is delicious. It just really, really works. But Atlantis, Sentinels of Atlantis is, is episode building. So I'm building, all my episodes are building blocks. And so it's not really like writing a sequel. Um, although when I'm finished shaping season two, it will be like writing a sequel. Because if you look at the overall arc of Sentinels of Atlantis season one, it is basically one, one big giant book um, in the, the structure. Mm-hmm like the narrative structure not the actual physical structure which i've told in episode format but the narrative structure was uh, i meant to mimic honestly i was trying to mimic ba- on babylon 5 and the construction that he did um in creating babylon 5 because i was i i find it fascinating and so i was trying to um create a situation where i could do that in stargate and um but coming into season 2 it will be the same way it will be episodes that are building into a big moment but they're also it, it, the the narrative has to have an overall structure of a book and putting that together is is kind of daunting I mean, I feel good about it because I've done it once and I honestly think that I did it really well. And sometimes like when I was in it, I wasn't really sure. But a couple years out, reading it a couple years out, I'm really proud of the work I did in Sentinels of Atlantis and putting it together. I felt like I really accomplished something there as far as like as a writer, you know, learning about myself and learning my craft and, you know, expanding my toolbox i think i accomplished that with sentinels of atlantis and sometimes you have to be a couple years out from a project to see what you added to your toolbox that makes sense mm-hmm. so but i'm writing a sequel in april um it will greatly depend on how i feel about certain elements of fandom um <laughs> right as to what sequel i write but it will either be the sequel to Flight or the sequel to Gravity. Um, now next year we are doing Year of the Sentinel, so it does have to be a you know. And I actually really, honestly, did consider a um, sequel to uh, what is my Lady Hawk AU called? Uh, the Subtle Body. The Subtle Body. I had considered. I have considered a sequel to a Subtle Body because. They didn't get laid. <laughs> but she'd have to she have to find a she have to find a hook because you can't do 30k of sex. I mean well you can, I've read it, but I, I don't want to read it again. <laughs> Once was enough. I'm right. I need a hook. I need a hook and I'm not sure I have one. Um I have a hook built in for gravity. Um I don't have a hook for flight, but I could find one really easy, you know. Uh, that 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 wouldn't be hard at all because when it comes to flight and gravity, um, they're they're both Harry Potter fix, and so I've got a lot of room there. Yeah, you can get a you can you can get thirty k out of a Harry Potter fic like like nothing. Boom, done. Like most of the stories that I my, my any Sentinel stories I thought might could use a sequel. Um, I so far I don't see thirty k in them. Which is kind of like, hmm. which got me to thinking about a different approach to the challenge, which was to write an established relationship. It's not a sequel. It just, it felt a little bit like, wow, I've got all these Sentinel stories that might need a sequel. Shouldn't I just go ahead and write a sequel? But, you know, 
Sometimes you just got to start I mean, something new. You absolutely can come into April with a fresh pairing um, that's an established relationship. What would be really interesting is actually, what if you had an established relationship and they came online together after the fact? That was my thought, actually, was that they're in a relationship and come online together. Maybe, maybe or that, come online because of each other. Like there's a moment, like or um, um depending like, on what you're right, uh, what fandom you're writing in, it could be like um, an accident or some kind of event that was really stressful. If you're writing Tony and Gibbs, it could be the events of Boxed In. I'm not doing that again. No, um, no, but you know what I mean. Or it yeah. could be um, the events well, of Chained, or what's the one with Atlas? Missing. Missing. So for those of you who are doing, you're thinking about NCIS, those would be really good points for one or both of them to come online. Um, yeah, I thought about, I had I had considered the idea of like Tony being in a relationship, specifically with Rampart, since that's my new... Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not mad. <laughs> the new ship I want to explore of them already being in a relationship. Now, based upon probably where I'd said it in canon, he couldn't be commandant yet. He, he wouldn't be old enough. Um, but anyway, he I, I'd also have to do some AU stuff, which is pretty easy to do. But anyway, so he's in a relationship with Rampart and that something happens um, that they're so that, you know, one of the reasons why their relationship is so strong as, you know, seemingly being mundane is actually because they're perfect match for latent sentinel guide and that something happens and they're so in tune with each other that something happens and it pulls to one it pulls the other online um, and because of my whole headcanon about how trauma can pull a guide online um, but danger will pull a sentinel online um make Tony the guide in that situation. But I also see Rampart as more of a sentinel anyway. So, um, but I could do that. I just have to come up with a more of a storyline than just them coming online together. But a lot of them writing their relationship together, since that's the point of that month of April, is 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 the pair. It's, it's their dynamic together. Mm -hmm. So, writing them and, and their life together, and, and potentially, the, I think, the evolution between where they were before they came online and what it does to them coming online together and writing that progression in their relationship could be very interesting. It's something I've never done before. It's write a couple that was already together when they came online. I don't think. I did it in Sentinel of Atlantis with Elizabeth and Simon um, where he started to come online and then she followed in a feral episode. But what we, I think what also might be interesting is to have um, a situation like you had in Demons where one is online and the other is not. And people are like, you, you really don't need to be in a relationship. <laughs> and there being a lot of conflict outside of it because here is this Sentinel or this guide who, who is having this relationship with this, with this latent sentinel or guide and they're like you know no you need to stop that's because it happened for me and um i wrote that in from blue to green um from green to blue i forget which order i put that in where john comes online many years after having a relationship with rodney um and joins rodney in atlantis thank you shadow blue to green um and someone asked me once uh why I named it that before I ever wrote the story because I zero draft. 
And I had that moment where I talk about their eyes meeting from blue to green um, in my head when I was zero drafting. And a lot of times my, um, my, my titles come to me during the zero draft process. So, or the outlining process, whatever what you want to call it. Yeah. But that John broke up with him because he was Leighton and Rodney was online and he was getting so much grief about it. Um, and he wanted Rodney to go on and, and have a fulfilling life with with the partner that he was destined to be with. And so he walked away and then to come online later in combat and to have to deal with those circumstances without a guide and then to find out his guide's actually in another fucking galaxy. Can you imagine the level of fury... <laughs> that a sentinel would have if they found out their guide was in a on another fucking planet in another fucking galaxy. <laughs> Wait. What? <laughs> it's so rude. <laughs> With space vampires. Right? <laughs> it just gets worse. But that would be interesting too to, to to write one where they're in a relationship and one of them's online and the other one is not, and the one that's online is like, you know what, fuck all y'all, stay out of my business. <laughs> yeah, what which Tony and demons do, Dom and demons is like, and the thing is, Dom's position in demons was that nobody was gonna possibly ever tell him what to do. Because they saw him very different, which is insight Tony didn't have, Tony Stark didn't have, is that is that if Dom says, but out of my business, they do it because the perception, even though Dom wasn't bonded, was the perception by the other Sentinels is that Dom was the strongest Sentinel on the planet. Um, so when he says, leave me alone, but out of my business, they do it because it's basically in a way, even though he wasn't technically anyone's alpha, is it was like their alpha giving them an order, but out of my business. But Tony didn't have any insight into that. And so for him, he's getting besieged by this is going to be temporary. You can't count on this. Um, He's going to leave you. And having to deal with that is would be very stressful. What I would say to anybody to say it's going to be temporary, even if it is, some of the most beautiful relationships I had were, were brief. Mm -hmm. They were gorgeous, brief, and perfect because they never got a chance to sour. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You know? <laughs> They can live in your mind as this shining beacon of relationship <laughs> perfection, <laughs> right? And lots of really good sex because you never had to deal with the toilet seat being left up in the middle of the night and you didn't have to deal with somebody who squeezes the tube in the fucking middle. And yes, that is just really, really rude. Really? <sighs> what is wrong with that toothpaste tube? What happened to but, it? But, you know, you I think on it? There's, there's some, there's some ugliness around the idea of, of having a short relationship um to having a temporary relationship like like that's not worth pursuing um and sometimes you just meet somebody and, and you have a moment and that in that moment is is perfect and you don't need anything else from them and you and you move away you know from each other and, it, and it's fine and you have fine really awesome memories of that person um and even though that person has mo has moved on and grown and changed and become somebody else, there's still that really hot ass <laughs> fit dude <laughs> that held you up against the wall and fucked your brains out. 
they're meanwhile, still... they're probably 50 and they've got grandkids. Right? But they live on in your ma imagination much better than they are now. <laughs> but I don't have memories of them being 50 with grandkids or whatever because I don't know them now. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there would be some um, conflict outside of the relationship to deal with and um, that could give you a point and you'll, that that could be an interesting subplot. Um, the circumstances of this other person coming online, maybe it's connected to this subplot of people saying, oh, hey, you know, you actually can't, this relationship is ridiculous. Or it would be really interesting is like if you have a Sentinel who's online and they're dating a mundane. I actually think it might work better if it was a guide. No. A sentinel. And maybe there is a guide in the area who actually wants to be their partner. And this this latent asshole is in the way. Um, and so they do something inappropriate. Kidnapping. Murder for hire. Whatever. Depending on your fandom. Um, shallow mushroom grave. I mean. <laughs> like I said, just depending on your fandom. And <laughs> no mushroom grace. every day, Ellie. <laughs> but, we, we, um, do, we, we do Hannibal every day over here. It is <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and Hannibal. <laughs> but, and then the Sentinel <clears throat> comes online in response or Whatever, whichever, like whichever situation you have was where if it's the guide who's online and maybe a sentinel um, in the area wants them and kidnaps them and tries to make them bond with them, whereas their partner who's not online immediately comes online because this asshole's taken their their boo. <laughs> right. Like you did what? <laughs> <laughs> they put the ripper on a blade. <laughs> I think it'd be really interesting to have a situation like that. You, you know, and depending on the fandom, um, how that would work would be up to you. Um, that would that would be a good way to do an established relationship without approaching a sequel, um, where you have one partner online, um, where you don't have both of them trying to figure out how to be a sentinel and guide at the same time, um. Yeah, and how the how the relationship changes once it happens, and there could even be some. I could even do like something like a deliberate interference, like um, like someone is maybe giving some something to to the guide side of that pairing to keep them from coming online, like a psionic suppressor or something. I'm mad already. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there, there's lots of things you could do with that. So you don't have to do a sequel. I think honestly, coming into it with a sequel, um, with a with a with something already under your belt, um, would be easier. Unless you're intimidated yeah. by the sequel process, um, but I think it would just be easier personally. And so, um, I don't actually plan to stress myself out in April. So I am probably going to do a sequel. Um, I'm leaning towards one in particular. Um, because I have the best hook for it. My only, my only um, issue with with the sequel with the sequel of to my most of my Sentinel works 
are either okay. So like the longer the longer story, which I think could support thirty thousand words easily with what's left to go, um, already has a sequel in process. So that's ineligible because the sequel's already in the works, and that's the journey home. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I look at the other works that I have, and see, I don't want to force a sequel in a story that I don't think needs it. So other stories that I think of that that could work do with sequels, I don't see thirty k out of out of a sequel for those stories. So I have to either like really ponder what story, like what, you know, novella length idea would come up with that. So that's, that's like, it's not that, um, I mean, unless I did a sequel to like that one short we did, the choice, what was it called? Was it called the choice? Oh, no, actually, I think you have to have a, a, a pretty good hook built in for that. Yeah. Because there's not much there, right? So we don't know much about that pairing. But it was just, it's, it's, um. But I wrote a sequel to The Bridge, so. Yeah. <laughs> a fairly long one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, right? Here's this tiny short story, and here's this novella link sequel. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of when you think about, it says we're, you know, sequels, um, some stories, I would say, there's sometimes you write a companion piece to um, a story and that's a little bit different than writing a full on sequel. If you're writing like a little 5k or 10k companion piece um, to something that's novel length or even epic length or something like that, it's like a little side story. I don't think that follows the typical rules of a sequel. Um, This is a case of, to me, it's like somebody who hasn't read the original work isn't going to get anything out of this. So yeah, I call them interludes. I have a whole bunch of them for ties that bind. Yeah, so it's like to me those are those those are a little bit different than typical. So like I've pondered, like I have no intention of writing a sequel to Duty of the Living, but I have a couple of um, like little side stories, um, and for those, like I would not probably like drop in a lot of the details that happened in Duty of the Living because it's because of Duty of the Living's novel length and like a 5k little short um, it kind of just expounds on one thing that happens in the future it, you know you don't want to bloat that with it's one of those things it's like that, that little those little I call them to me I call them companion pieces but interlude works as well um, to me those are a little bit different but when you're writing a full-on sequel and i also want to specify a prequel is a type of sequel if you are writing a prequel to an established work that is a sequel now the rules for that are a little bit different meaning that you're not laying in the information from your original story you are building the foundation for your original story which is completely yeah george different. lucas yeah george it's important to not invalidate your first work with your prequel. Right. But I'm not bitter. I'm salty. And a little sweet, actually. I'm bitter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm bitter. I'm bitter. (laughs) But that is... I got out my peppermint soap because, you know, it's getting close to Christmas. And my husband was like... There you go, smell like candy again. <laughs> I taste like candy too. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is peppermint flavored, actually. Uh, well, you couldn't well, handle it, but no. But when you are writing, a, if you're going to want to write a prequel ever, 
in turn and for a story if you want to write a prequel a prequel is a type of sequel it just happens before the story you originally wrote so the first thing you write you started that that is that is story zero and anything you write subsequent to that is effectively a type of sequel so prequel you're doing a little bit differently which is that you need to understand you're doing it, it's it's the same kind of information though you need to figure out what is important for you to lay the groundwork for what is important for you to build what is important for you not to contradict and map that out and that's what you're going to bring into your planning for your prequel you ever write somebody asked you ever write a story already planning the sequel yes there are times i will actually like plan out a three book arc or um um like when i wrote this is this is original work but when i wrote um whatever it takes i knew that was a three book arc three three story arc and the reason i didn't just tell that as one story is because of the big time jumps between major events so it would have been very clunky to tell as one work so i knew that was gonna be three um and i've done that with fan fiction too like um i knew that um de novo would be um, i planned de novo to have a sequel so i knew that was gonna be two um when i wrote vicious i planned for three um i even named them um so sometimes i do know when i start before i ever write the first word that there's going to be multiple books planned sometimes i get to the end and i go well i could see writing more in this universe i find it interesting or maybe i don't plan to but i find it alluring or um I did not plan to write when I started writing stick around I did not plan at the beginning to write a sequel by the time I got to the end I knew I needed a sequel it's always the way um I actually zero drafted all three novels for the war mages trilogy before I started writing the first one um well, I don't, I don't know how you could call it the war mages trilogy if you didn't know there were gonna be three right <laughs> Uh, but their but their titles are that old black magic, those magic changes, and magic will never die. Um, and they're all zero drafted. Um, of course, the, uh, that old black magic is written. Um, I zero drafted Atlantean Legacy. Um, all f <laughs> there, I have five zero drafts, but seven hooks, seven ideas. And then there's that whole copy and paste competition I have with Lady Holder, where we plotted book seven twenty five times. <laughs> As you do. Well, book seven, if it stays book seven, is Sebastian's book. Um, and um, I went back and forth about how to write Sebastian's book um, and what the circumstances, book five, is book five, um, what Sebastian's circumstances would actually be on earth, um, how old he would be, um, if he knew about his heritage. Does he know that John Shepard is his father? Um, this is this is post declassification. Um, you know, how old is he? Is his mother alive? Um, how does John find out about him? And we uh, we we went r round and round and round because this is this will be a sequel, but it won't be a traditional sequel in that. Um, coming from Sebastian's point of view, what's happened in Pegasus is, is a complete mystery to him. Beyond what has been declassified. You know, he doesn't know much. He knows his dad is in Pegasus. 
living on Atlantis, leading um, the military for a, a new society. He knows that that the Lantians want no part of Earth, and he's on Earth, and he knows that his father and uncles are gone. That his father came back to um, his his grandfather. His father came back to Earth, picked up his family, and left. So Sebastian has no one. Um, and so that's it's gonna hurt. And so he has to decide, you know, at a point, like, um, can I handle this circumstance on my own or is it time to reach out? Um, and how do I reach out? Uh, and there are several um, programs moving around Earth that Atlantis has let loose to keep track of the humans because she considers them a threat. Even more so after the trip there. Where they tried to take um 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 Atlas, uh, she's not going to forgive that ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I have to have realistic circumstances. How do I get Sebastian and this program? How does he get this program notification notice? How does he know about the program? Where has he been? Where is his mother? What in you know what has influenced him? Why does he need his father now? Is it an emotional need? Is it a physical security need? Is it both? And so that kind of sequel is, um, in some ways, I'm almost starting over by with book five. Because the way, circumstances but, are so drastically different. Yeah, but you already said earlier what information you need. Because you talked about that he knows that his father, you, you, you mentioned the things he knows his father is doing. Um, you said he knows that his father's in another galaxy, right? And that he's mm -hmm. so yeah, because, that because of declassification, yeah, right. So this stuff—that's how the things that Patrick, not Patrick, the things that Sebastian knows about his father are the things that um, Carol bring in that will ground the reader in the other books because mm -hmm. it's what Sebastian knows. And he, Sebastian cannot know more than he knows, right? That sounds ridiculous. And yet you see people knowing more than they know all the time. Um, little did they know. Little did they know, yes. Or Tony got out of the car and didn't notice that he dropped his paper and it slid underneath the car. And you're in Tony's point of view. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Tony can't not notice something. What is this? What is this tomfoolery? I can't. I'm not having it. <laughs> But I see that all the time. It's like your POV character not noticing something or falling asleep and not hearing the discussion that the other two people in the room had. It's like, he's asleep. <laughs> and he, of course he didn't hear it. And that is people trying to slip in some additional information, you know, a little foreshadowing with the piece of paper under the car or you know, the discussion going on over his head. It, you know, if you need to change point of view, change point of view, but you can't have your POV, POV character not to notice that they not notice something. That's just crazy That's, cakes. That is so deep, crazy cakes. So deep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I know so all, where I'm going to go right. with, so all the, with all, all, story. So, But all the reader can know about the story is what Sebastian knows. That's all that the reader can know about the other the other books is what Sebastian knows until Sebastian is with his father again. And then 
the information that is relevant to Sebastian um, comes into play when John tells him stuff or when Rodney tells him stuff or whatever. Assume, assume, I'm assuming he's going to get his daddy. Don't make me come I have so there. many daddy issues that it's, it would be unreasonable if he didn't. Um, right. But it is going to be about fatherhood in more than one way because I, I look at the ramifications of the ancient genetics, Earth wanting Atlas, um, the NID finding out about Sebastian, which is closest they're going to get to John Shepard's DNA um, and what they might do with it and what they might do with him and how he might respond. And so book five will open up with Sebastian on the run with the girl they chose for him to breed with. Ugh. Um, he's 16. And he is... Uh, they didn't have sex. They, they, they demanded a donation. And um, were told that if he didn't give it, then um, things would get bad. So he gave it. And um, when he finds out that they've impregnated this girl in the facility he burns that shit to the ground <laughs> because he's a shepherd and they have been training him like I'm going to take a little piece of the pretender out mm. and stick it in and so they've been using Sebastian um, like Jared was using the pretender so they've educated him thoroughly um, and he uh He's been with them for so long, he has a whole lot of privileges. They think he's complacent. Or they're complacent. And they think he's content. And when he finds out that they have impregnated this girl um, with his child, all hell breaks loose. Because he doesn't have any family. And they made the mistake of giving him one. And the results are catastrophic. And so by the time John gets to Earth, the facility that he was in was is is literally a smoking crater. <laughs> he leaves nothing behind. He burns that shit to the ground and kills them all and runs with her. And then I was trying to figure out what would make him reach out to his father. And I'm thinking that that, that, that would be it. That he has this girl um, and she's very pregnant and he does, you know, he doesn't have a lot of resources. He doesn't know who to trust, but he knows from um, the work he did for the NID that um, there are way that, that, that Atlantis is keeping track of them and then they don't know how, but he starts reaching out to various um, in, in various ways online until he catches Atlantis attention. Dinky. And then Atlantis, yeah, and, and and then Atlantis tells John, "Hey, um, <sighs> you're going to be really mad, so you need to sit down." <laughs> this is he's not John, John's not the only one going to throw a massive temper tantrum. Considering <laughs> and considering the powers those people all have, he's going to need to be like in an isolation room or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, so John's going to come to Earth and and get his um, his son and the girl and um, grandbaby. his grandchild, you know, his grandbaby. And by the time John gets there, um, Sebastian will have actually already delivered his own child. 
because they were on the run and she goes into labor and he he they can't risk they can't risk it yeah. so yeah i mean it's it's really ugly right but i'm i built so many ugly circumstances into the lantian legacy that i was like the ripples sometimes you put these ripples into place and then you and the the the, the further they get out the worse they are and so you have to you have a choice. You can either address them and find a way to deal with them or ignore them. And the ramifications of them of the Lantians having this technology that can't be used if they don't have genetic um, and John demonstrating a strong connection. Of course, if they get a hold of his kid who has his gene even though it isn't the gene that John has now, it's better than than, than what they did have. And um, they can't control O'Neill. They can't make O'Neill do anything he doesn't want to do. But they can take this this 10-year-old boy and, and indoctrinate him. And then when it becomes mildly decent, compel him to give a semen sample so they can impregnate their other gene carrier. Ugh. So I mean, it's gross. ugly, right? It but, is, but, it, but it's the realistic. Are, and of course, you know, he has to deal with um, with this girl and with with the baby and um, having fathered a child of virgin. <laughs> They're both virgins. <laughs> I can imagine the virgin birth jokes, <laughs> but, um, and yeah, the, um, um, there will be an, an, another character as well. And so that is an issue as well. Um, and, um, how they're going to, to navigate, um, this relationship and the trauma bonding that will take place between the three of them. But when you strip somebody down and they, and they don't have anything and then you give them something to fight for, then you fuck with them. What you get, you deserve. <laughs> yeah, they brought that shit on themselves. They epitomized that expression. So, but anyway. I had considered having the baby be born before they run. Um... And that him running with the baby because they get rid of the mother. But I was like, that's an ugly step too far. I can't do it. <laughs> I can't. I can't. That's that's too ugly. It's too much. <laughs> I've, I've, I've reached my own threshold <laughs> for ugliness. If she's not successful. Not if the baby doesn't have the gene that they want. Or if the baby's female. Or whatever. There are plenty of reasons why it wouldn't be considered successful. <clears throat> because putting two gene carriers together doesn't mean that they get an active ATA gene. In fact, they might get a recessive gene instead. Which, which would make her not viable for another experiment. But I'm not going to do that. There are certainly ways to accomplish it. Although I did consider at one point them killing her as a punishment to him for um, him not staying on point, staying on task. 
Oh, she has a name. She's not unnamed. She has a name. <laughs> Actually, she has four names right now because I haven't decided which one to use. But she's not unnamed. She's got four of them. She's overnamed. <laughs> but I don't want to. Um, I said I didn't want to discard her because that's just ugly. That's just that's just that's just a step too far. Um. So, but anyways, the ramifications of sequels and your your consequences. Yeah, and that's why, and I think one of the reasons why we call it the art of the sequel is because there's not a clear-cut formula, because it really does depend upon what kind of story you're telling. The next, like, if 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 the next book, the, the next sequel in the Atlantean Legacy series was more about, like, the progression of events on Atlantis, it'd be a very different formula to try to put that together than to do what Kira was just talking about, where it's told from Sebastian's point of view. Um, so it, it all depends upon what kind of story you want to tell, um, what what and what details from the original story are relevant to the next story. Because it might be that a really inconsequential detail is very important, or it might be that something major from the first story is not at all important. And I, like I have that with Denova, there are some really big things that happened in Denova that are not important in the next book. So there's just no point in recapping them. And that's one of the things I see quite frequently in, in when I, you know, read sequels is you get a recap of everything that happened, everything. And you don't need everything. That's just like, well, why did I bother reading the first story? I could just get the recap. Presumably because the story was good, but you know, you never know. About <laughs> that. Um, so like, let's say I have multiple sequels multiple different stories and, and they're kind of a little bit nebulous in the plotting because like where they occur in the timeline alters things a little bit but i have several different sequels plotted for the found verse and um i did not plan a sequel when i started writing that one but i feel like it had a few of my stories when i finished them i go there's a lot of room for a sequel in this and this was one of the ones where i feel like there was a lot of room and by the time I got done, I was like, there's a lot of room for more in this <laughs> series. I have so much room. There's more to tell. But like right now, I'm thinking the next story that I would tell would, the one that's currently leading the pack for the next one to, to be the next story uh, in the timeline. And so therefore, I prefer to write things as close to a linear fashion as possible. It's very awkward to, for me to write like, four stories and then insert a story between stories two and three like a full story not just like a little side story but a full story between those two it, it that's very awkward to me because then you gotta deal with the situation of making sure you don't contradict anything that came after so you're laying the foundation for the next story and you have to be sure that you you know bring in enough details from the first story but then your third story like let's say you're putting a like you're putting it between books one and two but then your third story has the wrong details right? You're, the details that are brought in to reground the reader are the details from the first book, not the book you're inserting in the middle. So I know people do that kind of thing or they, I just don't like it. Um, which is why it's important to me if I, you know, to write the story that would be occur next from, from the timeline perspective. Um, and the one that's leading the pack right now is the story where Tony, I've talked about this on the podcast before, where Tony is kidnapped. Um, 
as a misdirect. It looks like it's personal, but it's just to keep them out of the way so that they can take care of somebody can infiltrate the trust, can get some stuff into the SGC and can get an operative into the SGC while Tony's and while people are distracted looking for him. And Patrick, you know, gets gets his knickers in a knot and he insists that they read Gibbs in because he doesn't feel like he's getting any traction. And he insists that they read Gibbs in and get Gibbs to come find Tony. And it leads to Patrick and Gibbs getting into a relationship and then ultimately Gibbs transferring to um, work in the program and be Tony's partner and not romantic partner, but anyway. So anyway, so that story has like what about if found is important to know for that, right? Um, pretty much all that's like the events that happened in if found, most of the events completely irrelevant. It's just the basic foundational detail that of the the kidnapping and Patrick finding his son and and how that connection happened and that Tony ultimately left NCIS and was read into the Stargate program. Those are the pieces of information that are important. Retelling all the different things that happened in If Found, like the stuff around um, Boxed In and Tony, you know, Ziva getting sent. None of that stuff will matter. So why would why would you bring that up? It's just it's just information for the sake of itself. So, so that's an example of like the kind of story you're telling and what the focus of that story is, and that's where it would be told a lot from be told between Gibbs and Patrick's point of view, and so. All the information about Tony's kidnapping is going to come up very naturally in, as a baby. It's going to come up very naturally to Patrick's point of view because it's happened again. He's lost his son again. So finding the way to ground the reader into that information and reestablish what had happened in the past and how he found his son as an adult and all of that, that's a very natural to easy way to bring it in because it's going to be on Patrick's mind in a very natural, obvious way because his son has been taken again. Um, but beyond that, the actual events of the story, the plot points in that first book aren't particularly relevant to that story. So I wouldn't need to bring it up. And that's why it's important to like, when you're going to write a sequel is you go, well, what matters, what matters and, and know and, and in order to know what matters when you're writing a sequel is you have to know what the point of your story is. What story are you trying to tell? Where are you trying to get to? If you're doing a direct continuation, and there's different kinds of series, right? There are series where each book is kind of like, um, they're novels that tell like a, a progress. They're like, they're like individual novels um, that, they tell like the next phase in someone's life. And then there are series that are telling the same arc in pieces. Like the Harry Potter story, I would call this an example of the second. Whereas like the in-death series is more an example of the first. It's like each book, for the most part, the in-death series is mostly individual stories, right? Now, sometimes they do pull information from each other. And there's, there's sometimes a thread that threads through some of the stories. Um, but the Harry Potter series is building to one, the climax in the seventh book, it was in theory, established, you know, start that the foundation would be let, laid for that in the first book. So that's all telling one big narrative arc in, you know, school year size pieces. So 
are you doing that? Are you literally continuing the story, the next part of the story you already started? Or are you telling another, a new discrete package, a new discrete story about the same set of characters? And I think that makes a difference as to how, what your approach is. Because you have more to do, you have more, more, more to bring in and more foundation, more to ground the reader in when you're telling part of the same narrative arc that you've already told. You're telling the next piece. That makes sense? Mm hmm Now, where this gets dicey. And I we think it also gets dicey with the formula. Because um, that um, the Harry Potter books became very formulaic. Thank you. It was not going to come out of my mouth. I don't know what was going to come out, but that was not the word that was eventually going to come out of my mouth. I'm just saying. Um, but, and you get stuck. Right? She started in first year, and she told us there were seven years in the school. He had, to, he had to be in school seven years. Okay, so we have seven books. Don't you think around book five, she wished she'd started him in, you know, like high school, and there had only been four years? Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, and it bears bringing up, and there are probably at least five people listening live right now who are going to roll their eyes. This is a little bit of a more of a challenge for a pantser. Don't roll your eyes at me. It just is. I will turn this podcast around. I mean, think about everything we said and tell me that it isn't a more of a challenge for someone who pants, who pants their stories. You may know the detail, but you may know all the details of the story you wrote, conceivably. But if you don't know the story you're going to tell, how do you know which details you need? <laughs> right? So, it, and the thing is, I don't, when it comes to the, this, this particular thing, I don't really have, the only thing I can say, the only thing I can advise for a pantser, how to approach this. Do your thing. Put your pants on and fly by the seat of them. And you need to figure all this stuff out in your edit and your edit's going to be big because you're going to have to go in and go, did I lay the foundation for the story I actually told appropriately? Did I tell too much? And you're going to have to take a really critical eye to your story to figure out if you fucked it up. And you may have, you may not have brought in the right details. You may have told a whole bunch of crap you didn't need to tell and you need to be prepared to just cut all that crap out. And then bring in the stuff that matters, which sometimes may mean writing a new scene or a new part of a scene or expanding a scene or something like that so that you can naturally bring in the details that actually ground the reader appropriately in the story you told already. That's the only way I can think of to approach that if you don't know what kind of story you're telling before you get to the end. Can you think of another approach? No. I mean, but, you know, the thing is, is that understanding the, the, on um, the mindset that pantsers go into a project with is pretty difficult for me. Um, yeah. Because we've learned over the course of this podcast that I've never pantsed a damn thing in my life. <laughs> but <laughs> Despite we also. my previous claims. <laughs> well, you've sat down and go, I'm going to pants something. But by the time you get done to the first, by the end of the first, you know, chapter, you've got the whole story planned out. She can't help. But that's the way her brain works. That's why my brain works. I just would never not plan what was going to happen next. The only time that I would ever be in a pantsing situation is like a round robin where I don't know what's coming next. And then I'd be stressed and anxious and I wouldn't like it. And frustrated um, as fuck. I right. can't. I can't. But we also know there are degrees of pantsers, right? There are pantsers who actually do 
know what kind of story they're going to tell. They know what their end goal is. They just plan to fill in the details when they get there. They don't actually have a plot like document. They don't have, they don't have plot points. They just know, okay, I'm starting here and I'm ending here. Okay, great. If you know those things, then, and you know what type of storytelling, you know, your, your, you know, your central theme is, you should be able to relatively with some level of confidence, figure out what details you need to bring in from your past story into the sequel. Um, if you're a pantser who sits down with no fucking ideas, like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up, you know, I've, I've reread what I wrote and I'm going to start on the first and see what happens. If that's your kind of pantsing, the only, that's the only advice I can give you is what I already said, which is that when you get done, you're going to have to go in with a very critical eye and look at it and say, is this the right thing? Do I have the right information? Is the reader going to understand this story? Does it stand by itself? You know, um, did I bring in information I didn't need from the prior story? Did I repeat a bunch of stuff that's irrelevant? If you're not prepared to do that, if you can't take that critical eye to your work, this podcast is not for you. Just go ahead and turn it off. Go listen to the <laughs> magical butt sex mystery tour. It, you'll get more out of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But there are, it's difficult because there are just like there's levels of plotters. There's people who, who plot down to the, to the Nats ass detail. Um, they have every scene mapped out. They know every conversation that's going to have going to happen. I can't. Yeah. I can't do that either. Cause that's telling over telling the story and I just lose interest because I only tell stories I'm interested in writing. Well, if I've told the whole story, why would I want to do that? So that's, but that's me. That's my process. So, but there, and there are degrees of pantsing. There are people who sit down and have, I mean, I think I think there we have pantsers. Something talking to me. Wow, I think my I think Siri did talk to me for a second there. But we I know we have pantsers that are that are such diehard pantsers that if they didn't have to declare a fandom for Rough Trade, that they wouldn't decide until the first. I mean, they are that level. They are that all in on not making that decision, <laughs> and that's fine if that's your jam. You know, you do you, boo. But if that's you, and you are someone who doesn't make any decisions until you, until the mood strikes, and you want to be able to write an effective sequel, then you're going to have to be prepared to be brutal. We're talking axe murderer brutal on your story when you get done and make sure that you've done the work right. It can be done. If, however, you're a writer and you're a diehard pantser. I have no advice for you. <laughs> None. If you're writing a sequel, you're going to, basically you're going to overexplain or underexplain. That's just the way it's going to be. Because the thing is, is that when you are writing a sequel, that you are, um, that you need to make precise, thoughtful decisions about your narrative. And I make the least thoughtful decisions about my narrative when I'm actually writing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just like... She, pan <laughs> she pants as penguins. Sometimes it's a good impulse, but she still pants as penguins when she's writing. I mean, sometimes penguins happen, okay? Sometimes penguins happen. Sometimes there are random, random extra babies. It's like... <laughs> sometimes when she's writing there are extra babies. Oh, like, I remember there was like a note in bitches one day. She's like, there are babies in small magic now. I, I didn't 
<laughs> there wasn't a baby before. <laughs> there are but. no babies in the zero draft of small magic. Now there's babies. Now there are three. Four. Yes, Ellie. And then once you pants a penguin, the penguin, the way the penguin relieves itself does have to be sorted out. Because I mean, no one no one wants to walk their penguin in the middle of the night. <laughs> how's that even happen? Right. <laughs> So, um, so I don't honestly, need to know about penguin poo. That's why Atlantis took care of it. Right. But I think, I think a lot of our craft shows really don't work well. The advice doesn't work well for, for posting works in progress. Unless you really are a diehard planner and you've plotted the whole thing out. Maybe that works. But when it comes to like pantsing and you're putting up a chapter every few days, it's, it's hard to make considered choices about your overall narrative when it's already up and say, okay, well, you know, write it, then go back and edit it. Oh, you can't, it's already up. And of course you actually can go out go back and edit it, but you're going to hear about it. And you're going to have to put that author note up. that says, Hey, I changed the first 10 chapters. <laughs> so you might want to reread them. And honestly, that, that would piss me off. Honestly, I, I have to admit if I was, not that I read a lot of works in progress, but if I was reading a work in progress, I was like, well, I think I screwed up and I, I decided to go and change my first 10 chapters. I fixed a bunch of stuff and repost them. You're going to need to reread them. I'd be like, bitch, what? <laughs> what? I mean, I wouldn't say anything, but no, I, I would never read you again either. So, you know, there's, there's that. I guess it would depend. If I was really invested in the story, but also I'd be super curious about what the changes were, because sometimes you'll you, I changed it. I made a major change. No, no, you didn't, honey. <laughs> they changed three it. lines of the whole ten chapters, honey. No. <laughs> like where did I miss the change? So you had to investigate because sometimes. They've really not done what they said they did. But it feels big to them. It feels like they made this humongous decision. When in fact they did not. Oh. Um, I'm looking at my stories. See some of my stories. I look at them and I go no. I would not write a sequel for that. I'm like imperfect. I think I, when I was done with that one. I was done with it. Um, memories. Now the funny thing is in memories. Gibbs and Tony they get together at the very end, right? So they're, they're, you're just getting, they have their first kiss. Like it's like the very last couple of paragraphs is the first kiss. I don't see a sequel in that one either. Um, so some stories, I think that unless you get a specific idea and I went, okay, I would feel like I was just choosing to use, like I would have a very specific Tony Gibbs established relationship story and I was choosing to use memories as the backdrop, right? But in that case, none of the details of memories are really all that important, except that they got together while Tony was serving as agent afloat. Right. Right. So I, I, I loved writing Courting Hermione Granger and I didn't want to stop writing Courting Hermione Granger, but my zero draft ended and I was done and it was kind of upsetting and it, you know, hurtful and I was like but, but I'm not done writing it but I am done writing it and I don't see a sequel for it yeah you're like I just on yeah, the other hand I see a whole bunch of sequels for what lovers do yeah that's all kinds of fun. mostly 
hot, sexy BDS sequels. It's like mostly porn, right? Because <laughs> some girls just need their ass banked extra. Mm-hmm. She did need her ass banked extra. She was naughty. <laughs> she, she was very naughty. Um. Now, while okay, so the two the two finished works I think I've had like longer works this year. Um, or Duty of the Living and um, both, they're both Team Wolf, Duty of the Living and and uh, Unobstructed Views. Duty of the Living, I don't really see a sequel in it. But, I mean, it might be that I get an idea for something, but I don't really see a sequel in that. But like I mentioned, I, I have thought about some companion pieces that are more about the effect of the change in magic, right? As opposed to like, a, you know, writing a whole new story. But I do see, and I've already started, and I knew when I finished it that there was a sequel for um, Unobstructed Views. And I knew exactly the directions go, but it, it goes a very different direction for an Unobstructed Views, which is it's talk, it going into the development of, of Styles' magic and what him coming into his magical heritage means, which is a very different focus from uh, Unobstructed Views. And Unobstructed Views is a very small change in a very small canon divergence that has really big impact on Derek's pack. And it's about, you know, the formation of Derek's pack and a lot of emotional healing for a lot of people and really about Styles and his father's relationship. That's a completely different focus than Styles coming into his magical potential. So there's some details about that first story that will have to be fed in to explain how Styles how Styles is part of the pack, how the pack wound up living in Styles' house. Those things will need to be established. But beyond that, there's not much else that happened that needs to be explained because it's not germane to Styles learning about magic. Now, conversely, some stories, I'm sure you've got some of these, Kira, are very open. It's like you see the potential for a sequel, but you don't have a specific idea. So like one of my Sentinel stories that I think has the potential for a sequel, I've always thought it had the potential, but I just never had a very specific plan for a sequel, was All Your Reasons, which is the Tony Bruce Banner story. I would love Um, a sequel to that. (laughs) Because I did a lot of, part of the reason why there's so much potential for that I think a sequel is I did a lot with the world building that I didn't really I explained, but it was like because it became relevant to why Tony was the way he was and why he had the sentinel he had. But other than that, other than the the bridging the bond between him and it was it was the hook to get him and Bruce together. But other than that, it didn't really serve a function actual function in the story. So there was all the potential. Um to to do a sequel with that story, I think there's a lot of potential there. It's just I don't have a very specific contained idea of what that would look like yet. I've had a few like vague ideas, but nothing specific. So I have stories like when I look at my my works that are that are up and I go, well what that one? No. I some of them I have a hard no. I wouldn't do a sequel to that. And other stories I go, that could have a sequel. I have no particular idea for it, but it could. Um, there are other stories as the next story would be like this story should have a sequel it absolutely should I've always planned it 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 will you know and then there's this has a really a lot of potential for a sequel but I don't have anything specific so um, I'm thinking I came over to my website to look at my stories but I don't have a big list like you do so I'm a little annoyed 
um, like a like a title list. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't want to make one because it would be <laughs> a lot more work than I'm prepared to do. There's I'm, a reason why my catalog is is auto populating now. <laughs> but I would I would make you a titled list if you wanted me to. I would go and get all of the links for you and send you the HTML. I think that I could probably do a um, sequel for Just One Touch, which was the one we all, we did together where Sentinel gets invited. Right. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Um. I could do a sequel to Daring. Which is the other one you did the? I don't know. Do you feel? Do you see potential in your Ian? Oh, oh, oh! Um, the one I know you could do a sequel on is the way the hell out of Pearl because you had to stop yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I had to stop myself. I had to like no. <laughs> I had to tell myself no and get up and walk away because I was that that was like one sentence away from a fifty k novel. That's what she said. She said, if I write one more sentence, I'm going to be writing a novel and we're not going to have our one sentence prompt. <laughs> and I read the story and I was like, damn, I want that next sentence. And then the 50K <laughs> novel. <laughs> but there are sometimes you look at a story and think, oh, I'd like to expand that. And I would actually like to expand Way the Hell Out at Pearl, but rather than write a sequel. I think that actually could be my first chapter. <laughs> yeah. I... I had I had started to write a short that one that untitled Stephen Caldwell Tony Dinozo story that's still called the untitled Stephen Caldwell Tony Dinozo story. I had started that as a short, but it got a little bit too long. And then my attempts to make it short, the word economics to try to cram that story into two thousand words, made it such that it wasn't really as it was the right foundation for me to expand on it. So. I don't. I couldn't even call it a sequel because I never actually officially posted that anywhere. I put it kind of up as a sneak peek. Um, but uh, that wouldn't really be a sequel. It would just be taking it and t- pulling it apart and starting over. I'd like to write a sequel to The Air the Angels Breathe. That's the one where John and Rodney are mutants and John has wings. I wouldn't be mad about you writing a sequel to that. Um, I think there's a lot there's there's lots of hooks there because John's um, um, a mutation has been revealed. It's been a secret his whole life. Um, his father guarded his privacy when he was young, and then it just became a private thing that he didn't want to share with anybody because he's unique. He thinks he doesn't know that there's anybody else on Earth who has wings, or if they have that they have not shown them. Um, and so he's just been you know keeping it private. And then in a moment, um, that all changes because Rodney almost dies and he has to use his wings to save McKay. And so it's, you know, so this is going to filter back to earth. And so it'd be really interesting for John to come um, back to earth to, um, and then you guys could meet the alternate version of Patrick Shepard, who only had one son, um, uh, which is kind of harsh, you know, uh, but the circumstances of John's mutation, um, it just, it, didn't seem like other kids would be possible um, in that relationship because his, his mother responded so negatively. And I needed that to happen because I needed Patrick to have something really to be, I needed to demonstrate Patrick's the depth of his conviction. And that's how I chose to do it in that story. Um, that, um, and I also wouldn't mind, this is really weird. 
but I wouldn't mind writing a sequel to Monsters, Inc. where um, John has his little dragon (laughs) (laughs) on Atlantis, (laughs) whom he named Meredith. (laughs) That would amuse me. I mean, it's almost as good as an emotional penguin. An emotional support penguin. But I would have to write a sequel to um, um, The Subtle Body. I would. Um, because I feel like I'm not satisfied with that story. Well, I can understand why. I mean, you weren't... Um, in, in the writing, you were having a really hard time keeping it away from paranormal romance and keeping it you know on track with urban fantasy and you stopped it where you did to to stay true to the challenge so i could see why Mm -hmm. you'd be like you know we'll never do another urban fantasy challenge again it's gonna be paranormal romance or nothing Um, although (laughs) although it could be paranormal romance slash urban fantasy for the people who don't write romance right right um but the it, limiting it was was hard (laughs) y'all it was real hard she, she she had a rough time yeah I have planned sequels, like I said, for several of my Harry Potter works. Um, um, I have a new season for the Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. I have the two novels for the War Mages trilogy. Um, I'd like to do a series of novellas um, for what lovers do. Uh, But I do feel like Way the Hell Out at Pearl, that's actually just like maybe like half the first chapter of a novel. Because I was like one sentence away from like, <laughs> then I'd have had to make another damn. <laughs> and the problem. one, the one I had that problem with, I think was um, Common Disaster, which mm-hmm. was the um, the Betty Bruce story. Yeah, I was writing, and I went, "Whoa, whoa! I got to stop! I got to stop!" Because this is about to. Betty become- was. I, I really enjoy the character of Betty Ross. I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I had this whole because their kitten name, their kitten was named Stark. I had this whole like idea about that formed like fully formed in my head about you know Betty's social media campaign to um, sort of humanize the Hulk, and you know that Stark winds up with one of the biggest Twitter followings on uh, he has his own Twitter account, and and uh, yeah, it's just this whole different tra- different different direction for the Avengers after um, after the after after the events of the the, 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 the battle for New York because of her presence um, and how she handles things so it just it kind of like started fully forming in my brain I'm like no 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 gotta rein myself in can't do that gotta shut it down shut it down shut it down now, when you have like, I will say, when you have like a five thousand word or three thousand word story, and you're writing a sequel, there's there's really it's not hard to, to be minimal about you know you could pull in practically the whole story, encapsulate everything that happened in the whole story in in a hundred words, and even if you do an info dump, nope, your readers aren't even going to notice. But it, it's a lot harder. The more you had in the prior story, the more it can seem intimidating. Like if you've got a 150,000 word story and you're looking at the sequel, you go, Oh my God, how am I going to ground the reader in what happened before? And that's where it comes down to. You have to stop and ask yourself the question, what in that story that what happened in that story 
is important for the reader to know in order to understand the next story? What will ground them in basically your, your world's canon? What will ground them in that? And give them continuity. And sometimes it can be, even if you've got 150,000 words, because your story is on, a, your sequel is on such a different trajectory, you might need very little. And sometimes you might need a lot. Especially if you're doing a continuation of events, like you're wrapping up events or you're still dealing with events that were established in the first book, you're going to have more work to do. And where and how to drop that in, the first rule of thumb is when it becomes relevant. Giving the reader, in that case, giving the reader information before it's relevant is distracting and it could be a pace issue. You could really bog your pace down trying to recap stuff that happened in the past. I was over on Kira's site. I was looking in the chat room. I was over on Kira's site looking at her list of stories by fandom, determining which ones need sequels. Like, it's my decision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not opposed to suggestions. <laughs> this one needs a sequel, Kira. Well, the, some of them I already know. Like, some of the ones that jump out at me that I already know um, have sequels that you've already planned, like Tangled Destinies. Um, but I personally, I would love a sequel to Wrath. Um, I I was all in on that story. I was all in on it. And I, was I really, so I I really enjoyed that moment when Spock told everybody that he in fact wasn't Feral. It was like I was just being me. I know, right? <laughs> if you don't want to see me, Feral. I actually. just, I was just so, <laughs> I was so intrigued by the Vulcan Sentinel and what, how it was manifesting that I was just like, it's so. I'm not going to ask here for more, but I really want to read more of this. <laughs> Thank you, Queenie. Tangled Destinies is my love letter to Amanda Grayson. I mean, Tangled Destinies is one of the first things that jumped into my mind when I thought about stories that could use a sequel but i already know you have a sequel so it plans or even in process so i but why bring that up um but a series sequel is different i mean like because of the way tangled destinies is designed or created or put together and the way sentinels of atlantis is put together and the way harry Potter and the soulmate bond is put together is that um I could come back into those because of the world building that i've done and the zero drafting that i've done that i've done and just write you know, it's like, I, I, I know what happens next. I know where I need to go. Um, and I can sit down and pick it up anytime. You know, it's because I've already done all that work. I pick up my zero draft for the season two of Tangled Destinies. Okay, we're going to be doing this, this, and this. I need this episode first. We're going to go here. We're going to be doing this. They get to have sex. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Because I got to tell you, about halfway through Tangled Destinies, I deeply regretted starting it where I started it. I, I knew you did. I was like, she made them so young. They're too young. And um, someone someone actually said that the sex in Tangled Destinies, um, they were disappointed that there wasn't more. I was like, they're, they're too young. You know how old they are? <laughs> are you paying attention? I thought that the sex that they had was actually... Um, Less than what would actually happen between two teenagers that enamored with each other, but not unbelievable considering their circumstances and their species, you know. But yeah, I actually had a reader tell me that um it was unrealistic that, that two teenage boys wouldn't be fucking. 
And you know what? <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> but but it being re- realistic or not, it it sometimes an author's just not going to write it. So if I had two teenage boys and they were in a relationship, there'd be nothing. I'm not. Mm, there'd be very little happening on screen. Mm-mm. I'm just saying. Um. For for really for really the reason that there wasn't penetrative sex in Tangled Destinies was more about Spock's maturity than Jim's because Spock is Vulcan, right? So um, so and they mature differently, and um, Spock is a lot younger. Um, he's not even um, he's not even finished with puberty. He's barely started puberty when they bond. So there's a big difference, and it actually comes up in the of the story is that Spock is physically incapable of being penetrated right now. Is that his his body is not fully matured, and it could be damaging to him. Um, and Jim's not an asshole, but and Spock is not sexually mature, which is on par for his species. This is something I made up. Spock is literally not sexually mature, but um, some people don't care about that kind of thing. Yes, it's, yeah. They only want what they want. My favorite scene actually in Tangled Destinies was when Amanda was teasing Sarek about his bromance with Pike. <laughs> but specifically when she's been waiting for a long time to connect with him. And so when he finally gets her, when they finally connect, she has been, you know, she's not paying attention and he scares the shit out of her. That really amuses me. I mean, it just, it, it amused me. <laughs> trolling his wife but the structure of tangled destinies um around their young age and their bonding was you know it it got frustrating so i will say that season two there there will be a time skip between season one and season two because at the end of season one they're they're still quite young um and i'm just i'm done with that (laughs) i'm real done with that (laughs) But I'm not opposed to a wrath sequel. That actually, I'm, I might put that on my list for April of of considerations because that would be an established relationship as well. Yes, it would yes, be. that would be the character who bored everybody with really boring scientific stories when when he was mad at them. Yes, the great troll. Everybody's got you know every every family has one. This is true. You know that I didn't have the Sentinel on my fandom list on my site? I don't have any... Of course, someone asked me recently about a sequel to uh, Unleash Your Demons. Um, There is one, but it's... You had talked about doing one. I know you talked about it, so you at least saw the potential in it. Looking at my ripples, um, what what comes next is hard. Uh Uh-huh. And mean. And I'm not sure I want to write it. Um, there's lots to deal with, and um, I did have this like seeing this this scene form full in my in my head that um, the guardians get to Earth sh- just short of Thanos because he doesn't have the ability to do what he did in canon. He he's going to come in ships, and um, they get there just ahead, and they're meeting with Shield. And um, they 
end up being introduced to Tony and um, his team. And Gamora is like, what the actual fuck is this? <laughs> and she's pissed because she thinks this that Nebula is is that her skin suit is just another modification that another man has pressed on her and she's furious. And um, when they get alone, you know, Nebula makes it pretty clear to her sister, you know, this, this is my deal. This is my life. This is what I've carved out for myself. And if you fuck with it, I'm going to kill you. I love you, but I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I mean it this time. <laughs> And those of you who don't care about spoilers, I'm waiting. You can you can cover your ears if you care about spoilers. Okay, Gamora did time travel with them, and I'm on the fence about what that does to the canon for um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, because honestly, one of the most difficult moments for me in Guardians of the Galaxy is when Yondu sacrifices himself. But it's also beautiful, and so I'm like. But on the other side of it, would Peter forgive Gamora for knowing that was going to happen and not preventing it? And the answer is no. He would not. Yeah, No, I agree with you. I don't think he would. And the other side of it is, is I don't think that she could actually have a really honest and good relationship with Peter Quill without revealing what she knows. And I don't think maybe they would tell the whole team. Probably not Rocket. Rocket doesn't need extra information. <laughs> maybe Groot and Peter. <laughs> Keep everybody else in the dark. But I think that she would need somebody to confide in, and and that person would be Peter. So, but uh, yeah, yo. Know, so there's there's lots of potential hooks and sequels. Um, well, I mean, she could she could tell Peter. And have him be carrying an extra, like, let's say you could do something where she actually tries to let events play out, but, but position it so that Yondu can live, like putting an extra suit, making sure there's an extra suit or something. I mean, it would probably depend upon how important she thinks it is that events with ego play out. Well, ego needs to be contained and destroyed. Because he's Certainly. he's he's gonna eventually, if they don't contain and destroy him, he's eventually going to um activate that thing that would destroy all those planets, right? Maybe Groot could or could not happen. It just depends on the circumstances because Groot sacrifices himself to save the rest of the team. So um if she couldn't prevent that circumstance, then baby Groot would still happen. It just depends, you know, what can she control and what she, what can't she control? Um, how do things go down without Nebula? They're trying to kill her. Do you know when in the timeline she actually arrives? I'm sure you've looked into it. Um, she is in Ronan's service. And I think at that point, she probably already knows where the Mind Stone is, but not the stone that um, Peter eventually retrieves. But she's in Ronan's service at that point. Her of the past didn't know where it was, but her, the, her, her that traveled back in time now knows where it is. Right. Well, no, I mean, we don't know we don't know how long Gamora knew about the Mind Stone. But she was already, she'd already I been mean, tasked with finding them. 
You mean the power stone. What do you mean? The mind stone was was the in, soul stone. The soul stone. Okay, soul that's stone. the one she was researching. I'm talking about the power stone is the one that Peter went after in the orb. And but Thanos had tasked her with finding all the stones. Right, but my point is that and she had her, found her the soul stone. Her who traveled back in time. She had to have some inkling of where the power stone was, though, because she knew to go look for Quill to get it. Right. Because Ronan... So that might have been one that she was had found already. Because Ronan showed up to get it, right? So it could have mm -hmm. been because she had found it. Right. But you see Gamora in Unleash Your Demons after they time travel. Um, and that's why she follows Nebula to make sure Nebula gets away. Because she knows, she doesn't know where Nebula is going, but she's made the decision to trust Nebula enough to know that whatever she's doing, she's doing for the right reasons. So she's going to make sure her sister gets away. So she follows Nebula and takes out the bounty hunter that has been, that has found, that has been following Nebula at Thanos' request. And then she leaves because she's got shit to do too. And so she's, she, Gomorrah makes a choice in that moment to trust Nebula and Nebula's intentions. So really, Gomorrah trusts Nebula like a hundred times more than Nebula trusts her in that moment, in that time period. When they both tra time traveled um, and Gomorrah doesn't know why Neb um, 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 Nebula time traveled. She doesn't know where Nebula is going. And so when she gets to Earth with the Guardians and she's introduced to Nebula Stark, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? What are you doing here? <laughs> why are why? you playing house with this asshole? <laughs> why, do you, why do you look like that? <laughs> why do you look like that? And, you know, I think that a lot of ways Gamora would see Nebula's life on Earth as rather frivolous um, because she plays a role. You know, she's she's on the covers of magazines. She's she does TV interviews. She flies around in a, in a little suit, you know, that Tony Stark built. And it's not it's it, it would look very frivolous. To, to Gamora, but Nebula's like, bitch, I already saved the universe. Fuck you. <laughs> this is my space. This is my planet. <laughs> this is the life I want. So you need to shut your pie hole. <laughs> Get gone, she, woman. Yeah, she's living her best life. You know, and I, I, I kind of like picture them having to go to an event, you know, and Nebula getting all this attention from people because she's Tony Stark's daughter. Gamora being like, what the hell? What, what the fuck is this? <laughs> because she's not... Gamora is soft. I mean, uh, Nebula would be softer by this point when they finally meet up again because Peter is going to be 18 or 19 years old by the time Thanos comes to Earth. Because I can't have him come when Peter's a little kid. I, I feel like he needs to be able to defend himself. I, mean, I don't know why. It just it seems like it needs to be... They need to be like superhero family... <laughs> game on motherfucker you know and not have peter be a little kid so it's going to be quite a long time and so nebula is 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 um softer she is very um acclimated to earth um she's living you know she's she's having a really torrid um hot ass affair 
with him doll. <laughs> I'm not mad. Someone needs to be having a torrid hot ass affair with him. <laughs> and Loki and Thor are like, would you not? Would you not? <laughs> I can't help myself. I can't help myself. So <laughs> Now, um, Sentry isn't even up, but I had written that planning a sequel. But see, the sequel for Sentry is very different because Sentry, again, Sentry was a specific story, Tony coming into his powers, getting together mm -hmm. with Thor. Whereas the sequel is more about him going to Asgard and becoming, you know, royal consort kind of thing. It's a completely different focus. You know, plus lots of hot I'm not mad. I'm not mad at it either. So I, I'm actually really <laughs> jazzed about that particular story. Um, so we do have a question um, about sequels. That's about... This was in context of something we said about 20 minutes ago. Is it also true for story, short for original story pacing, only give the information about your world that they need to know right now? Um, more or less. Um, it, it, that's an easier answer, in my opinion, for like contemporary. It's a little bit harder to say that, give you a straight yes on that when it comes to fantasy or science fiction, because sometimes you need to give a little bit, you need to find a way to give your reader a little bit more information up front about the type of world you've got. I mean, it's better if it comes up naturally in context, like the socio-political climate of this weird planet they're on. Um, it's better if it comes up naturally rather than in an info dump, but sometimes you do need to give the reader a little bit more to kind of sink their teeth into the world and understand it, then give it out in dribs and drabs where they might be confused. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to judge from the author's side who understands everything, how well the reader is going to comprehend. Um, but for contemporary stories, definitely don't give the reader information about um, the stories. So like, you know, if I'm writing a story where you've got like two characters, two, two, a char you got your main character and they've got like, a couple really good friends, it's better to give information about those friends when the audience meets them rather than have a big info dump, you know, get a, a character musing on th their friends and getting all this information out in this big, you know, blob. And then you meet them and it, it, it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't have any good rhythm. It let, let that information come when it's important. Fantasy and science fiction can be a little bit different because you can wind up just confusing people if you don't give them enough information up front. And I don't mean do a big info dump about the world and how it came into being. And um, it, that, that's confusing too. So it, that really is when it comes to world, establishing world building, that's a little bit, it's a little bit harder to answer. Say, so just, just wait till it's important to give it. Because it's important at the at the moment that it gives clarity. You need to create a space for your reader to get comfortable in your narrative. Um, you need to set your scene and set your world. And That's, avoid info dumping. How right. do you do this? Experience. Right. That's why that first scene, the first couple scenes are so important, especially in sci-fi and fantasy. Because you want to give a scene that allows you to expose some of your world but that also isn't just a throwaway scene, right? It, you want to hook the reader with it. So 
that is artful. And some authors now, now I, let, let me give you some mercenary advice. When it comes to original works, when you're writing a sequel, you want to give your reader enough information about the first or second book or ever, you know, whatever books in your series to make them curious enough to go buy them if they haven't already. Just saying. I mean, give them the bare bones so they can comprehend the book that they've got in their hands. Otherwise, you're going to get shitty reviews. Um, right. But don't, you know, don't give them more. Don't, don't tell them all the wonderful things that happened because then why would they go buy the other book? I got seduced by um, Elizabeth Peters that way because I picked up The Ape That Guards the Balance um, in the bargain section of Barnes and Noble. And it was like $5. It was a hardcover. And I was like, well, this, this, this looks really interesting. And so I read the first chapter standing there. And the Ape That Guards the Balance is like, at, the point, at that point, it was about mid, midway through the Amelia Peabody series right and i was like i take it home with me and i read it i went to my husband and i said we need to go back to the store i have a list of books to buy <laughs> i have books i need books I need, I need these books because she seduced me she gave me everything i need to know about the characters to get invested but then i had to know how they got there because she didn't give me that because that's not she gave me the, the the emotional connections, the relationships, the mystery, the love, the dead bodies, the Egyptology, the archaeology. But she didn't tell me how they got there because I had to buy all the other books to get there. And that's like fucking boss. She's a boss. She was a boss. Excellent, excellent writer. And that's what you want to do is you want you don't want your reader to not be able to comprehend the work. But you also don't want to make it so that they don't need to read the other works. Stand alone, make your story stand on its own, does not mean the person doesn't, it doesn't mean take away the desire to read the other story. That's not what it means, right? Um, there was something, I don't even remember what show it was, but there was a show where I felt like I didn't, I, I was fine just watching the recaps, right? I can't remember what the show was. We watched the recaps. I'd be like, yeah, I don't need to catch up on that last. Because I mean, that's actually not a good sign. If you can watch the recap of an episode, that, that like 45 seconds or minute, sometimes two minutes they give you at the beginning of, a, of an episode, and you're fine not watching it, that's not good. Okay? So... You don't want to give the reader so much that they go, well, I don't need to read that. You want them to go, oh, okay, I understand what's going on here, but I really, really want to read. So, like, let's say I wrote the sequel to If Found, and right, so the reader doesn't need to know anything about, they don't need to know the circumstances by which Patrick found, um, got his son back. They just know there's this, this situation, and they got to solve it. They got to get Tony back. But I would hope that they would read that and go, I really want to read about how Patrick got his son back the first time. I would hope that they would want to. But it's not the role to retell that whole story. So that you're you're desperately avoiding the whole recap thing. So if you're thinking about like recapping the story, recapping what you wrote before, that's the thing you most want to avoid. You don't want to put your reader in a coma. But right. you also don't want to give away information that they could pay for. Right. 
that's mercenary, right? But that that's how you build an audience. That's how you build a brand. <laughs> and if you want to write for a living, you gotta keep that in mind. Although writing for a living is is not a goal I recommend. Now I wrote a sequel to the book I released in the summer, and um, I under I, I under in. I under delivered on the grounding the reader in the, um, but also it was, it's, that's something that's easy to fix, right? I didn't I didn't give the reader quite enough to reestablish what was going on, you know, the the circumstances, the situation. Like if you hadn't recently read the first book, you'd have been a little bit lost. So, um, but that was really easy to, you know, it amounted to a couple hundred words throughout the entire book to fix that um so that is a fairly easy thing to kind of go okay these are the details that are missing and and how am i going to put it back in how am i going to put this in it's it's a little bit actually a little bit harder and just this is my opinion if you over deliver because what happens then is that you've then built a narrative around this over delivery right so it can really suck if like lines of dialogues or parts of scenes are baked into something that is over delivery of details, right? You're info dumping, but you've got something you really like in the middle of that info dumping, but there's no purpose to the thing you like without the info dump. I mean, that's like, what, what are you going to do then? <laughs> so you take it out, you cut and paste it into a new document and call it scraps, save it. And try to find a bunch of flavor. But that's all you can do. So taking, you know, I find it easier to go, okay, I'm missing a little bit. I didn't like, for instance, I didn't like give the reader, um, and that's where like, you know, where are they geographically, right? Because if they hadn't recently remembered, they may not remember that they're living in the Bay Area, right? I need to reestablish geography. That's very basic, right? It's really easy to put that piece of information in. Super easy. But if I had put in a whole bunch of stuff and built a whole scene around giving information to completely re-encapsulate re the first book, it'd be hard to take that out. And writers can get very attached to what they've written. Well, I wrote those words. I need to post those words. I need to publish those words. Eh, not necessarily. <laughs> so just think about that. When you go through and you're editing... Just be, it doesn't matter whether you're a pantser or a plotter in this situation. When you go through and you're editing a sequel, keep those questions in mind. What did the, what do I need to have in to make the story clear? And is it there? It, is it, is it, is it present? I mean, the, the very best beta reader you could possibly have for that kind of story for a sequel is one who hasn't read the original. Um, I don't know where you'd find such a creature, but you know, right? <laughs> I had to find a fan of my work who hasn't read If Found, please. I mean, because honestly, if, if I'm coming in to read to, to beta read or an alpha read for a sequel, I'm gonna go read the original before I start. Right. So, you know, I mean, unless so like I after I haven't read one of the and I might reread it soon, but like I haven't reread Tangled Destinies in, in a while, probably a couple years. Um and because uh, Star Trek hasn't been a fandom I've been reading in the last couple of years. So that, but anytime I get in the mood for Star Trek, it's one of the stories on my list. But anyway, um, so like, let's say Kira wanted somebody, she wrote the sequel to Tangled Destinies, and she wanted somebody who had not 
read that story recently to help with is anything confusing? Well, you know, she could say, Julie, have you read it recently? And I'd be like, no. And she don't read it. Okay, don't. Don't. <laughs> I need you to read the sequel and let me know if there's anything confusing. <laughs> because that's really all you need is you have forgotten, right? It's like, is this confusing for somebody who hasn't read the story in a while? Um but it also does involve you as the writer being willing to be look at, take a critical eye to your work. And there it's really it's funny. This is an interesting thing. I talk to writers all the time who are super critical of everything they write. But they just want to like be critical of it globally as opposed to get in and, and deal with what specifically might be a problem. Um you got to you got to get yourself out of that mentality. You can't just say, I hate everything I wrote because you're never going to solve the problem. If you just hate everything you wrote. I've had that day where I hate everything I wrote that day. It just all felt wrong. And sometimes it's just my mood, you know, I had that day several days this month. Yeah, actually. And then you go back. Sometimes you go back and look at it later. And go, There's something wrong with that. And sometimes you go back to that later and go, wow, I'm glad I didn't show that to anybody. <laughs> No one needed to see that shit. It's like, holy crap, that was <laughs> drivel. Um, but it, it, the thing is, when you're in a when you're in a in a, in a mood when you're writing, because sometimes writing can be very cathartic. Um, when you're in a mood, it can be difficult to be objective about what you wrote. Okay, but if you just go, I hate everything I wrote, and I hear this more frequently than than I wish I did. Is everything I'm writing sucks? Da da da. Take a step back. Give yourself some space, but you've got to get prepared to go in and look at it specifically what's wrong with it as opposed to just hating on all of it because odds are it's not all bad. Now, is it pacing? Is it awkward dialogue? Is your characterization off? Because sometimes one little thing can throw a whole project off. Yeah, we've, we've all experienced it. I think, honestly, for me, mostly what will throw me off quicker than anything is a characterization or pacing issue. Characterization faster than pacing. If I've made a mistake in my characterization, it's going to ripple. Big. And it's going to be like... <laughs> Something's wrong. <laughs> and sometimes I will... I, I did this in Unleash Your Demons. I confused a characterization issue with pacing issue. Because I had Tony under-responding um, to some things as he was coming back and you know, after he'd settled back in time. Um, and I looking at it, I thought it was a pacing issue. And Julie was like, nah, dude. <laughs> I don't think so. That's not your problem at all. And sometimes you need that outside. Like, nah. No nah, dog. <laughs> That's that not it, what you're doing. That's not what happened. <laughs> You just need that <laughs> outside view. But sometimes your own view, getting some distance, can give you the answer, right? I, I, this is the opposite. I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is the opposite. There was a day. I don't know if I was on drugs or, or what. It might have been drugs. <laughs> it might have been drugs. Because that happens around here more often than, than not. Um, and legally I, prescribed drugs. Yes, legally prescribed. <laughs> Although I live, in a, in, I live in a state where pot is legal, but I actually don't smoke pot. But anyway. Um, but yes, legally prescribed drugs. And... Um, it might have even been when I had like cracked my kneecap. But anyway, so I was in a lot of pain. But the, um, I had written something. I was enamored with it. 
I was enamored with it. I thought it was like the best thing I'd ever written. It was only like uh, eight or nine K or something like that. I finished writing that day and I, I busted it all out in one day, set it aside, went back in a more sober frame of mind and read it. And I went, Oh my God. <laughs> Just be thankful. You didn't actually post it on your website. It's like, what is this shit? And the thing is, I just had to deal with that horror—that horror of like, oh my god, I can't believe I wrote this. Oh my god, I can't believe like for the last two days I've been thinking how wonderful this thing was. It's terrible. <laughs> it's absolute drivel. <laughs> but you know, and I'm not—I'm not the person who would go and go. Everything I'm writing is crap, right? I'm that—I'm not. That's not me. Um, because I know that that kind of global condemnation is not actually helpful to moving forward with a problem that was all crap <laughs> so when i say that i just say i give you that qualifier so you understand when i say that all like eight or nine thousand words was absolute crap <laughs> <laughs> i'd say it was all id well, but if that well, was my id it was it was my id like totally stoned or something <laughs> just like what the fuck? what happened in the story what happened in the story i will say the prem i don't find a flaw in the premise okay okay but okay. the 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 idea of it was that Tony, um, it was during that when Tony was in, in Somalia mm -hmm. and um, Steve SEAL team was the, the team that was um, the backup. They were, they were there. They were with Gibbs actually. So McGee and Tony are undercover. And so Steve, the, like the scene opens with Steve is like, they're like in the, like a little, he and his, his there's like two fire teams out there, which I think I had like 10 people out there with Gibbs. And like one of their scouts comes in, and they says, you know, why didn't why weren't we told that there was a latent guide in in this in, in uh, undercover? And Steve gets really mad at Gibbs because he wasn't this wasn't disclosed to him that one of the undercover operatives was a latent guide because his team, and this was one of the flaws, I'm gonna just put it right out there, was all sentinels. <laughs> All of them. All ten. Um, yeah, right? Anyway. So, right? I, you just, it was just, I was like, what was I thinking? But anyway, so, go with me on this. So anyway, everybody's getting revved <laughs> up because there's this, there's a latent guide being tortured, right? And you've got all these unbonded sentinels. Um. Yeah, oh, I know it was terrible. But anyway, so he comes online um, in this circumstance. It was that this is what I wrote. It was terrible. It was, it wasn't a bad premise. It was a wretched execution. And all I can say is drugs, <laughs> drugs, drugs, drugs. This is Jilly's brain on drugs. <sighs> Ten unbonded sentinels all working together. It doesn't make any sense. It was just like, oh my god, what was I thinking? As soon as I read it, I went, why did I do that? So, yeah, there was nothing good about that except the premise. I still like the premise. I could see if like there were one or two sentinels, and like I could see Steve being like furious. You didn't tell us that there's a, a that one of your undercover officers. We needed to know that so we could be prepared. Um, because I would assume that you know their scouts would be sentinels, so they can get information without getting close right and it could be very right that makes sense they could be very very upsetting for them if they smell a guide or latent guide in the situation they're not prepared and said latent guide is being tortured so them not knowing is a problem well the issue is that gibbs didn't know 
And uh, oh, did I have to be he didn't know or that he didn't think it was important? <laughs> Either way, it wasn't good. Either way, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. That 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 file has some terrible name on it, like you know, the fic that shall not be named or something, and it's it's hidden. I don't even know if I can even find it anymore because I read it and I just went, oh, good god. <sighs> And I was really grateful that I was really I mean, tired when I finished writing, so I didn't send that to you and go, what do you think? And you'd have to be like going, uh, honey, <laughs> did you take your pills last night? <laughs> did you take too many of your pills last night? Was was there an orgy? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> no, but the, the last part I wrote, the last part I wrote is they're on the plane and Tony comes online, online in a traumatized condition surrounded by 10 unbonded sentinels. <laughs> what, was that that's not, I was um, like, what was I leading up to with that? And I didn't even know, right? I was like, what was I leading up to with that craziness? I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I almost wish you'd finished writing it while you were stoned impaired. out of my mind. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> it would be a crack fest. That's the problem is because the only way that could go is crack. But it certainly isn't how it intended it to be started because, you know, it's supposed to be a Steve Tony story, but <sighs> crack See, happens. Yeah. Well, I crack happens with me when I'm tired, but it usually is a little bit more deliberate than that. It's not like I read it the next day and go. What, what the it? actual fuck? What was I smoking? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, so if you're inclined to think that this this was a funny example of the opposite, right? Where I've got, that was glorious. And I go to bed and get up. And two days later, when I go back to it, I go, what the hell? Well, for starters, I need to figure out what drugs I was on at that time and possibly revisit them. Just I had a similar experience but i didn't remember writing it i i have a short story that i wrote for mckay shepherd um that i assume i wrote um because i have no memories whatsoever of writing it um it's in it's in my tone it's in my style it looks like my work i but because i have zero memory of writing it because i was taking a new sleep medication that week I feel no ownership over it, so I'll never post it. Mm. I assume it's mine. I've checked repeatedly in Google to make sure I hadn't saved somebody else's work because that's how divorced I feel from it. Yeah. And there's no zero draft for it either. So it's just something you sat down and started writing. Probably, you know, I mean, you could do that kind of crap on Ambien. It was, in fact, Ambien. Or was it the other one? Lunesta? Ambien? No, it was Lunesta because Ambien gave me auditory hallucinations. Those that or class, it, that or class, it thin the veil. I mean, one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> Though, those, that class of drug, like Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata, uh, I remember blanking on the name of another one that I've tried in that class. But anyway, they all can cause you to do stuff you don't remember. Ambien's by far the worst. My sister sees, has visual, um, hallucinations with ambient i have auditory um i have memory loss with, with lunesta obviously um my sister also eats when she takes ambient 
She gained 10 pounds the month she took Ambien because she was eating in the middle of the night while she was asleep. Oh, Lord. I'd be furious. <laughs> she got up one night and apparently ate half a strawberry pie. I, I could I could do that. I could, you know, I did, I did, I woke up with most of my kitchen in my bedroom. So, you know, I remember it. <laughs> I mean, I just tell you, dispatch, I'm telling you folks, you do not, you do, you do not want to wake up cuddling a wire whisk and not have any idea why that's going on. <laughs> it's just. Disturbing, and then you get up. Oh, where are the spatulas, Julie? Oh, wait, they're they're, they're all on my pillow. They're all in my freaking bed. I was like, <laughs> why did I move the contents of my kitchen drawers into the bedroom? <sighs> and then they're all getting washed because I have no idea what's going on in here last night. Nothing, nothing <laughs> seems. Nothing, put everything in the dishwasher. I mean, nothing seems suspicious, but I, I was so out of it. You know, I could have been cleaning up too. So, but you know, they were just laid out in neat little rows on the bed, <laughs> which actually was not a <laughs> neat little rows. That's oh yes, fantastic. Yes, I, my OCD strikes even when I'm asleep, <laughs> even when I'm under that kind of influence. But it wasn't honestly. It wasn't as much work as disconcerting as it is to wake up holding a wire whisk when you did not go to bed with one. Um. It was, I did, I did my, like, I, I had been sorting my, my stuff for my taxes, like right before, before I took the Ambien. And then I did my taxes on the Ambien. Not that that was my intention. I did them wrong. <laughs> so that had to be redone because I was like, what was I doing? And then I resorted all the piles. Like I had all these piles of paperwork for doing my taxes. My taxes were very complicated that year. And I had resorted them in some way that made sense to me on Ambien that was, like not at all useful. I'm like, what is this? What did I do? And I called my doctor and I go, this is so disturbing. He said, you need to stop taking that medication. <laughs> like, okay, I shall stop. But anyway, this podcast was requested by someone very someone specific who is working on a sequel. And um, so if she, or if anyone has follow-up questions about sequels, you can always direct them directly to me, directly to Kira. Um, you can leave a question in the ask a question for the podcast channel. And you can even say it's not specifically for the podcast. It's a follow-up from the podcast. Um, and we will, we will get back to you with clarification. <laughs> Cause it's not easy writing sequels and not info dumping is not easy. And I'm sure that you all have experienced reading stories, especially in fandom where you just getting so much data dumped on you that it's just hard to deal with. However, some of the people I know who are intimidated by writing a sequel, I happen to know they handle canon very deftly. Um, and the person specifically I'm thinking of who asked for this podcast does handle incorporating canon into their work very with a very deft hand. And so I don't think that this is much different in that regard. Is figuring out what- I would what say- the last piece of advice I would give on that is to err on the side of too little. Because it is easier to add in editing. Mm -hmm. It can be painful to remove in editing. I mean, you know. Very. Slash and burn. <laughs> slash and burn can be really painful. So, you know, err on the side of too little. Because you have room and you and you have plenty of time in your second draft to to um, correct any 
deficiencies you might have in um, in your explanations that your beta or your alpha might pick up for you. Um, but I think that in your first draft is um, mind your word economics and and be economical with your details as well, because you can always add later. And if there's still enough confusion around this, because some people will look at April, which is our next draft trade. They will look at that as a sequel challenge. It isn't necessarily, it's an established relationship challenge, which does lend itself to sequels for many of us. So if you, if there are enough additional questions about sequels prior to April, we can do a follow-up Yeah, to address absolutely. your your aim. But yeah, I mean, I think for some people, you know, writing a sequel in April will be the easiest thing to do, but others might prefer a fresh story. So it's totally up to you um, what works best for you and what works best for the challenge. Um, for me, writing a sequel is going to be, you know, cake. Yeah. Now, I actually. So that's the choice I'm going to make because I have a whole bunch on my plate with Quantum Bang. Um, now, I actually could so. write a. I, c I have one story that I could write in April or July, and that is um, I Wasn't Waiting for You, which is my Tony Aaron Hotchner fic, um, because they got together in I Wasn't Waiting for You, but they didn't bond. So it could be a bonding story, or it could be an established relationship story. And so that, and, and I kind of had lost interest in that because of, you know, things, but our recent recasting might help with that. Oh, yeah. And that's all kinds of, I mean, you did make some like inspiration art so I can ponder that appropriately. I mean, I'm not opposed to inspirational art. It may need to happen. I need to find the right picture, the right picture of, you know, who. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, um, if there are no more questions tonight, I think we can, um, close the podcast. I want to thank everybody for, um, showing up and participating and asking questions and um, listening to us ramble on a work night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you guys have a fantastic uh, rest of the week and we'll probably see you tomorrow if we're not writing. Uh, but I have some writing. I have a lot of writing to do. So, but um, we'll see how it goes. We'll catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. 